0: The combined lessons of the field of fire and the burning of Hall were heard loud and clear throughout Westeros. There would be more violence, but there would be no more battles, though there will be posturing for such. And there will be those upset that no more battles were fought. There won't actually be any. Before we speak of those holdouts, we will speak of those who bent the knee thanks to overwhelming force and or common sense, we might say, and how this reverberated through the ages and in the immediate aftermath. We'll start with a lot of examples from A Song of Ice and Fire. All five main novels are represented directly, plus *Duncan Egg. And these scenarios are paired with what's happening in this phase of our fire and blood crawl. Each subjugated region must take stock of how the war cost them, how much it cost them or how much the decision to kneel without a fight will cost them. For example, how will the Reach react to a change in leadership for the first time in literally thousands of years? How will the North react to a Stark King who didn't fight at all? These are all ongoing stories. They don't just play out in the moment. These threads involve all the kingdoms and unfold over multiple timelines because, well, it affected the entire continent. All that and more on this episode of history of westeros podcast hello and welcome everybody we're here with you as is almost always the case on sundays we're here at 3 eastern on youtube doing live streams every episode can be found afterwards still on youtube or on spotify in video form and the audio version can be found almost anywhere you find podcasts whether spotify youtube or elsewhere apple etc and they are ad free if you join us on patreon that's right. Uh looks like you
1: got a nice House of the Dragon shirt there. What are you drinking today? I've got a, a non-standard mix here. I got a monster drink and I don't even know what flavor it is. It's a blue can. Anyone know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> blue is always a But I mixed flavor. it with the blue blue machine uh, naked drink and watermelon and Mountain Dew. It's pretty tasty. All right. I doubt it as usual. <laughs>
0: I I'm, I'm having a triple shot Starbucks here can. This is I'm going to be very energized. Now, Nina has contributed as per usual. She's got a lot of great notes on both the field of fire and the lessons and the kneelings. But also, you should check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com, that's of course one y in alley, and the latest post there is she got a question about comparing Queen Alice and Eleanor of Aquitaine because George has made comments about that. Now, that parallel isn't quite what you think, as Nina points out, and she brings up a few other parallels. So that's great if you enjoy historical parallels to A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, you should definitely check that post out. We chatted about it for a while, and it was very enlightening to me personally. If you have questions of your own, you can submit them live during this live stream if you're watching, or hit us up on westeroshistory at gmail.com. And this episode is brought to you in part by patrons such as
1: i'm going to name a couple new and a couple old and one short and one long this is going to be <laughs> get ready for this yeah, all right nice so a couple newer ones sir dane of house dane pretty straightforward there mance wrestle
0: <laughs> nice Sorry. mance
1: wrestle the terracotton son of the north that's a cool one we've got dagron yeah, marshal nice. of the axe captain of the red tide resistance is futile i assume that's a star trek reference i appreciate now get this one this is one of our oldest patrons King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of Dragonglass, and the Valerian Steel Blade, Red Frost. Woo, mouthful. Yes. He's well armed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well yeah. titled. Yeah, that's
0: was
2: a great name. <laughs> yeah, right?
0: You can find all these patron names at historyofwesteros.com, along with everything else we mentioned throughout this episode. If you ever have a question about something we've discussed on the episode, a link or how to join us at Trivia or how to sign up for Patreon or anything else we discuss, whether it's small or large, you can pretty much find it all at historyofwestros.com. We, we try to keep it all in one place, even though we're all over the place. Got to have a central location, right? Yeah. So that's even, historyofwestros.com.
2: Yeah. Even when something's not 100% up to date, it's still going to point you in the right direction. Right. Oh, here's the link to the Discord. Here's the link to the Facebook group.
0: Absolutely. Our website is nothing fancy, but it is functional. It does every, it's does it got all the right links and takes you to all the right places. So it, it does the job. And of course, I'll mention some episodes at the end of this one that relate to this one, if you want to stay immersed. And let's get to a trivia question that from now on, as we started, I think, last week, the answer to the trivia question is during the episode. Of course, it'll be revealed at the end, unlike past episodes where it's just a random trivia question. This one's a little more, from now on, we'll keep it a little more tied to the content of the particular episode we're dealing with. So in light of that, where is the last place? We saw hot pie, the character, not the food. Although, if you want to tell me the last place you saw hot pie, the food, feel free. <laughs> Does my television screen count? <laughs> <laughs> no. no Does not. Amanda Aldo sends a super chat and says, hi, everyone. Thrilled to be able to catch the live stream today for once. All right. Glad to have you here.
2: We also got a last minute question from Amanda that I'll throw in here since she gave us a super chat. Sure. Sean, have you tried the grape raspberry sparkling I ice? Have.
1: I think that I've tried all the sparkling ices, even the ones I knew I wouldn't like. Like, I don't like lemonade. I don't like super citrusy tart stuff. So, but I still, there's like a cherry limeade and a I think there's a straight up lemonade flavor one. There's a bunch of different flavors, but I've settled on black raspberry is my favorite. I really don't like that one. Uh, That's one of my least favorites. Your favorite. The I grapefruit,
2: do like a lot of their flavors. Aziz, What's that? Is your favorite the grapefruit? Probably the grapefruit. Yeah, grapefruit. The lemonade, fruit.
0: Yes. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. taste like grapefruit. That's a good I like regular That's grapefruit anyway, so. <laughs> okay. So our first section is called the legend and the lesson. We gave fun and thought-provoking examples from Hall, which are, are neat and unique in their own way because Hall is still standing. Obviously, the field of fire is, there's no physical evidence of that anymore, but we're, gonna, we're not going to include other times it's mentioned in Fire and Blood. In other words, as we work our way through Fire and Blood, fire, Field of Fire will come up again and we'll, we'll tackle that when it happens. Mostly, we're interested in how it is referred to 300 years later or nearly 300 years later. And it rings out. Through the series in a variety of different ways at which was the point at the time I, I imagine Aegon would be pleased that his intended lessons still stretch beyond the lifespan of the dragons which of course are now coming back which is relevant to what we're going to talk about so let's start with the game
1: of thrones sean do you think that the people of westeros think about the field of fire as often as we think about the roman empire
0: you know what they might they certainly think about the targaryens as as often or more (laughs) that's a good call so in a game of thrones harlan tyrell's surrender to aegon after the battle is mentioned in the appendix like pretty thoroughly it's like a couple paragraphs and it's in every book every appendix has harlan tyrell surrendering to aegon after the field of fire and yeah so it was something that george came up with as part of the original details. And it's included as part of the the description of House Tyrell. There's one for Lannister and Stark. There's like a, a little blurb for each of those. So you all maybe have noticed that
1: before. Are there similar blurbs that are repeated in all the books or is that one unique?
0: That one's a little unique because it's longer, but I believe there is one for some of the other houses. I, like it's it's much shorter for Dorne and, and the North, I believe, but. Yeah, I don't think it includes the detail. Like, there's no mention. I don't think it's mentioned. Brandon the Builder. I don't think it's mentioned in the appendix for the Stark. So maybe he is, Uh, but not with a big description about two paragraph long, doing this and that. Not kneeling to Aegon or whatever. Yeah. So that's this is that is a little bit unique that it's so specific and unlike other parts of the appendix, it's it's more detailed. But before the appendix, because the appendix is obviously at the end of the book, (laughs) Theon compares the northern victory. At the whispering wood to the field of fire just after the battle he's so excited he's like we point out the huge disparity And he's like there were, we we killed 10 men to every one we lost of course the field of fire was more like 40 to one <laughs> but still uh, you know he said the most since then i don't think he's right about that but you know theon's a little naive and a little excited in the in the i mean he just won this battle he's excited it's understandable to be thrilled and survive a, a battle you're being your first battle But that's a a key point here that catlin makes in response to theon he says battle not the war right this was a battle not the war you didn't beat tywin did you and he's like uh no we didn't beat tywin uh now this is where another big difference because for Aegon, it pretty much was the final battle. This pretty much did end the war. So <laughs> that's another thing that's like, Theon, yeah, you're it's not, about... not that
1: good of a comparison, actually, Theon. <laughs> but still, he said it, so we wanted to address it. Theon does a lot worse things. We'll let this, this is okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is pretty small <laughs> in the scheme of things. You're right. And to be fair,
0: you know, there's a lot of details lost in the shuffle. We probably know the field of fire better than Theon does and but still it goes to show how these things get exaggerated and people try to compare their achievements or achievements that they're part of to other known achievements whether it's one of the biggest ones ever known or just the one of the most famous ones it makes sense that Theon would think of a famous battle and try to compare it to that uh, you know even if he's kind of wrong
1: about it I've always thought that our podcast here was very similar to the Gettysburg Address Okay, so Theon also starts listing all the captives they
0: took. This is part of what prompts Catelyn to say, but no Lord Tywin, huh? (laughs) And perhaps as a nod to the Field of Fire, since Theon brought it up, George had one of the captives be named Sir Garth Greenfield, which is pretty much the closest you can get to Garth Greenhand (laughs) without actually being Garth Greenhand. So this is some sort of kin to Sir Preston Greenfield of the Kingsguard. We're not sure what level what connection and the green fields are not a reach house that's a western house but their sigil is all green and yeah it would fit in the reach very well and garth is extremely a reacher name i mean it's just a name that pops up all over but more prominently in the reach than anywhere else so that seems like a nod
1: or maybe george just his his mind took him there and he didn't realize it should have made it garth garth Crintist hand <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> There's
0: also a Wayne Greenfield. He yeah, has uh, Wayne and Garth Greenfield. Yeah, no, there isn't. Oh, <laughs> oh, I would have missed. Not yet. <laughs> there, should yeah, not so yeah, right. there should be. Yeah, there should be. The lessons aren't active at the start of the series, meaning the lessons of the dragons, because what's the point of a lesson about an extinct animal? Who cares? It's, it's cool. It's legendary. But you're not like, oh, what if this happens again? but then of course it does start to happen again you're like oh by the end of the first book you're like oh there are dragons come again think about that in the real world we don't worry about velociraptors getting into our garbage cans or how to keep dodo birds as pets because it doesn't happen like there is no dodo birds and there are no velociraptors so you just obviously don't care about what they might do Nina points out that people in Sothoryos might (laughs) wonder about that or worry about that because they do have some sort of velociraptor type species there which is like Damn is just not a good place to live. People more worry more about ghosts in Harrenhal than dragons, right? Because they think ghosts still exist and they know dragons don't. Now dragons are back and ghosts might not have ever been real, although they probably are in some form. Kyburn claims to have seen one. And if someone wants to make this claim that ghost and Shadow Baby and Shade are all pretty much the same thing, I wouldn't argue that. It's just, it's, there's small differences there, but it's the semantics. And at the moment, we're not really concerned with that. We're not concerned with what's real actually we're concerned with what people actually believe because their beliefs is what drives them not what's true they believe dragons can destroy castles because of harren hall they believe dragons can wipe out entire armies on their own because of the field of fire and that was as we've been saying for quite a while very likely part of aegon's plan he wanted people to, to learn that lesson so when danny comes to westeros some of those dormant thoughts will return The draconic power that destroyed Harrenhal has returned. That makes it a legitimate fear, a thing that could really happen. Details like size and age get lost in the shuffle. That's what I mean by that is Dany's dragons will not be able to destroy Harrenhal. They might be able to kill lots of people and burn things, but only Balerion was able to do that. But that's exactly the kind of detail that gets lost in the shuffle. The common folk don't know that difference. They don't know that only this one really huge dragon could do that. They just think a dragon did that. More dragons could do that it's it's a much you got to boil it down to its much to its simplest uh,
1: explanation so we know that's not accurate but again it won't matter it's what people believe also it's not far from accurate it's not crazy for it's a reasonable rule of thumb dragons destroy castles check got it yeah (laughs) like being a little wrong about that isn't going to be like oh they can't
0: destroy castles well then
1: what am I worried about (laughs) it's
0: like it all yeah it doesn't all it doesn't all hinge on that one thing But this is where dragons being extinct for so long actually helps the disinformation because ignorance is at the heart of disinformation campaigns, real life or otherwise. It's a lot easier to mislead people on a subject they're very ignorant of. Common folk know diddly about dragons other than that they're
1: dangerous flying reptiles that breathe fire. They really don't know much else than that. Like along the same line, they don't know that much about Harrenhal other than it's the biggest castle. So... A dragon destroyed the biggest castle well maybe we know any dragon couldn't do that but some smaller dragons could destroy some smaller castles like so if, if i was if varus was actually on danny's side entirely
0: or if there was another virus or if i were someone like Varys and i was on danny's side this is the kind of information camp or misinformation or disinformation campaign i would run i would exaggerate the power of dragons i would go tell my agents to start spreading rumors in taverns like Varus does and in other places where rumors will spread ports you know places where the docks just places where rumors will will go far and wide and just start talking about how dangerous they are and how deadly they are even though danny's dragons are kind of small and they probably won't live
1: up to that it's it still sets the stage really well so no castle is safe that should be the
0: yeah yeah and drogon is the color of Valerian. they could really play that angle up like oh i, I mean Aggo, danny's blood rider who knows who's not from westeros this dude when seeing drogon like weeks old <laughs> said there sits balerion born again like really like that's getting ahead of yourself aren't you but it's cool and it's that's that's danny one, a clash of kings like the first chapter of a clash her first chapter the clash of Kings. so yeah right after they're born like they're born in the last chapter of a game of thrones and here in this first chapter Ego's like there's balerion born again and danny's like yeah cool all right yeah but, uh, you know, but we're not, the this, this story is not going to go long enough for Balerion to, or for Drogon to get that big. I mean, Drogon, Balerion was, you know, over a hundred years old, of like 180 years old when he died or something
1: crazy like that. You don't think Martin's going to write that much? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Someone else, maybe. Yeah. So now let's go to a clash of kings. Tyrion again thinks about the field of fire when he's looking down at Stannis's ships burning during another battle the Battle of Blackwater that's going to go down in Westerosi history and be pretty famous. So here's the quote.
2: The low clouds caught the color of the burning river and roofed the sky in shades of shifting green. Eerily beautiful. A terrible beauty. Like dragon fire. Tyrion wondered if Aegon the Conqueror had felt like this as he flew above his field of fire.
0: What do you think,
1: Sean? I think that the fact that uh, George has Tyrion consider this idea, thinking about how Aegon would have felt that makes me think that Aegon probably did feel bad, you know? I think that's like, I, I imagine as much as George has included this story, he's got to have thought about it some, right? He clearly had more and more plans for this. Yeah. And I, I I hope that if this is ever a TV show, that, that is like a struggle that Aegon has, that, that some of his kind of, I don't even want to say cold, because it's not like we know that his personality is cold. We just don't know what his personality is, you know? But uh, yeah, yeah, he's a an ex- So yeah. I hope that it's presented maybe he is stoic but not made of stone. Does that make sense? I, I hope it matters. I hope mm, he feels yeah. remorse for all the dead, death that he's caused and he's trying to find justification for it, whether it's stability for the realm or stopping some existential threat from a prophecy whatever it is. I hope he's not just blindly murderous, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So Aegon was looking down at green also, like Tyrion was. Now, his, he wasn't looking down at green fire, he was looking at, down at green things that he had set on fire, <laughs> like the Order of the Green Hand and all those green sigils of the gardeners. And the field itself was grass, you know, it was dry, but it was still, a lot of it was green. And, you know, it may have been browning, but still there's a lot of green down there. So, yep, yeah, green things on fire. Now, Tyrion actually gets agitated during this moment. He starts thinking about all the death and suffering and he blames it on Stannis, but he also blames it on himself, he's like, You know i'm partly responsible for this but so are you mr attacker mr you know guy invading the the capital here aegon as well may have had that may have been part of his thoughts he's like why are these idiots fighting me can't they see they can't win are they like wouldn't he probably be a part of him might just wish they had bent the knee and just not have to do this another part of him might like well it's this might save more lives if i'm able to just demonstrate how foolish it is to stand up against me it's maybe good to have one person to, to make an example of so yeah you're right sean it's like that's the kind of thing he could be torn off he's like well but maybe it would have been better if i didn't have to make an example of this many people and kill this many people he might not be pleased about that he might yeah it might be something that weighs on him or he might be convinced it was right like stannis someone like stannis is just very concerned very like confident at least the way he projects it is what he's doing is right you know, and he's he's confident in that, and he doesn't really second guess himself too much. Aegon might have that
1: level of of surety of him
0: of his own actions, but but maybe
1: not. That said, it's hard for us to know. It's hard to really get in Stannis's head, but I I don't think that he is ignorant to the suffering it's caused. You know, when uh, what's the line? You know, when you're like, yeah, hundreds of men will be killed, thousands. He responds right, like he knows what's happening. Yeah, yeah but. But it, he's already made the decision. This is what must be done. However bad it is, alternatives are worse. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, he wasn't saying that to be cold or, or snarky. He's just like, nope, he's just stating a fact. He's like, yeah, thousands of people are going to die. I mean, he's not, he doesn't seem upset about it. He doesn't seem happy
1: about it either. It's just, a, yep, that's what's going to happen.
0: Like, we can't, it's, it's
1: unavoidable at this point. <laughs> not to get too much of a tangent, but but it's it's sort of necessary for him as a leader. And But, but. I'm gonna say this, but he's he's still not sugarcoating it, right? Like he needs this subordinate to understand. Like you are correct, hundreds will die. In fact, it will be thousands, and we are doing it anyway. Get on, get in line. You know. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because to Stannis's mind, yeah, the the laws of the realm are more important than those lives. You know that he, he, in his mind, those laws protect lives in the long run. Even in the in the short term, you have to sacrifice lives to uphold the law. It's better than lawlessness or. Laws should be made of iron, not pudding, as he says. Yeah. <laughs> A storm of swords. Let's go there. Here's another good one. Elena Tyrell mentions it in Sansa 1. So this isn't that far after the Battle of the Blackwater since that's near the end of A Clash of Kings. And since Elena is so quotable, let's not miss our chance.
2: You Starks were kings once, the Arryns and the Lannisters as well, and even the Baratheons through the female line. But the Tyrells were no more than stewards until Aegon the Dragon, Came along and cooked the rightful king of the Reach on the field of fire. If truth be told, even our claim to Highgarden is a bit dodgy, just as those dreadful Florence are always whining. What does it matter, you ask? And of course it doesn't, except to <laughs> oafs like my son. <laughs>
0: That's great. Nina reminds us yeah, olena's funny here, but she's got a goal here she's trying to manipulate Sansa or maybe encourage Sansa, but into talking about Joffrey and potentially marrying into their family so she's you know she's she's trying to worm her way into Sansa's good graces here and uh but still it's a still a great quote it fits so well here and and it's going to come up a lot this idea of who really deserves Highgarden and rightful King and what, what what that means these are things that get continuously debated over the next 300 years. They're still being debated in the current times. As you can see, she brings it up and the Florence are always whining, as she says. And that's, that's Stannis' in-laws, which who of course didn't even fight for him at first. <laughs> they fought for Renly and then they switched <laughs> over to Stannis. Now, Jamie and Sir Cleos also mention it to Brienne, but we'll come back to that shortly. And Barriston mentions it when Danny is planning her dragon double
1: deal maneuver on the Astapori.
0: This is a great yet quick exchange.
1: Dragon is worth more than any army. Aegon proved that 300 years ago upon the field of fire.
2: I know what Aegon proved. I mean to prove a few things of my own.
1: And damn
0: right she did. That of course is like seconds before she says a dragon is no slave, makes a field of fire of the slavers. And it's a real rah-rah moment in the books where Uh, it's just great (laughs) Barristan is learned, educated, not easily scared, not frivolous in the slightest. He, along with Tyrion, will be awed by the dragons as much as anyone, but he's also far more knowledgeable about what they can do. And knowledge helps them be less afraid. If you know what they're capable of, they're still scary. (laughs) It's not gonna change that, but you're not gonna just be subject to wild rumor and, and maybe you might learn that no, actually they can't all destroy castles. Only the really enormously elite giant ones can do that apparently. Now it's not mentioned, in a feast for crows, but think of that amazing first chapter and how they're discussing rumors of dragons, which is very much in line with what we're talking about now. It's the first word of the book, dragons said Mollander or whatever. Now, to be clear, I think they're discussing regular rumors, not planted ones. And these are fairly educated people. These are students at the Citadel. So their rumor, rumor discussion touches on the fact that they need to be careful with what they believe and what they don't. These are somewhat educated people. They're smart about it. They're not just repeating what they heard or exaggerating what they heard and playing the game of telephone. So that's pretty neat. But the point is the same, even though they're more educated. We're all familiar with the idea of gossip turning out to be false, if not completely fabricated. And we're all getting more and more familiar with that (laughs) every day, living in the age of the Internet and AI and all these other things. And, and, you know, intentional disinformation campaigns, which is a thing as old as time, but is more easy to perpetrate in current times in some ways. Now, we're all familiar with the notion that sometimes fabrications aren't revealed to be such until much later, sometimes years, sometimes decades, sometimes a hundred years we'd learn the truth of something people have been doing this wrong for a hundred years like new scientific discovery changes what we learn. like oh all along this is we've gotten this wrong the sun doesn't revolve around the earth you know whatever whatever scientific discovery you want to name there's infinite examples westeros would have them too so in the in that intervening time before the truth is known if it ever is that's when misinformation, rumor and hearsay can thrive because th- without the light of truth, there's all these shadows that this misinformation can thrive in. Something that greatly enhances both the spread of and exaggeration of rumors is fear. When you're afraid of something, your anxiety sort of spills into your description of it or your maybe that fear is legitimate, but you might still be anxious about it. And that in turn spreads to the next person and that just keeps, it's, it's part of the telephone game that we refer to so often. Fear is a big part of that
1: to justify your fear. You want the thing to be scarier, you know, (laughs) that will add to the legend. Add to the myth. It's
0: a great point. Protecting your own ego, your own pride a little bit, by because people especially in a world like Westeros, where people just can manipulate entire countries based on are you scared? you know like how often does that work you know are you afraid you're like i'm not afraid like how that will work so many times that has worked on someone in the story like just accuse them of being scared and they're like i'm not nobody calls me yellow yeah Yeah.
2: exactly no one calls me a coward no one calls me yellow no one calls me chicken marty mcfly (laughs) effect right
0: there yeah it's just so it's just enormously effective and it's just like uh we're too but as a species we've got to get over this like (laughs) but they're not going to get over it in westeros anytime soon so yeah and this comes back to the rumoring, right? This has already played out quite a bit. Set aside what the dragons are capable, just look at the crazy rumors about Danny, right? Burning babies, killing her husband, slaying. Like, she didn't kill Viserys. She did technically kill Drogo, but that's really, I mean, come on. that's That's really splitting hairs there, I think there's the rumor that she hatched a three-headed dragon which is close to true but not at you know it's not accurate she had three dragons not one with three heads so someone like Tyrion hears that and he's good at dissembling he's good at dissembling what he hears and deconstructing the rumor and sort of pinpointing or at least narrowing down what's probably true about it not always because sometimes it's just so distorted that you can't figure it out but this is the kind of thing he looks at and and sees through and he kind of susses out some of the truth from this crazy rumor she's like she didn't do that she didn't do that well maybe she did something like that you know and that's kind of where he's at and that's where we're at and you can kind of but we get to see but we get the benefit of
1: seeing both sides of it Tyrion's more just figuring it out through his own intelligence even something like killing babies it's not like danny took a baby and a dagger and cut its throat right but she's the husband of a call right who kills babies like she's on she's part of this horde she's she's almost half in charge of the army that just killed many, many babies. It's not crazy to hold her responsible, you know? Yeah. I mean, every
0: military leader in, in Westeros we've seen is guilty of that. Rob's guilty of that, uh, They've, his orders have caused the death of babies. He hasn't stabbed any babies directly himself either, like Danny. But yeah, I mean,
1: Danny's dragon killed a baby. Like she's partly culpable for that. And she feels that culpability. She's the mother of dragons. The dragons kill babies. She kills babies. It's, you know, exaggerated or unfair maybe, but not, people aren't just making up random things. It's, it's, it's based in something. And that's Tyrion is probably figure out what is this based in, you know? So think about that in Aegon's time. We see the rumors told about Danny. What were people saying about Aegon? Like the
0: description of Balerion must've just gotten really insane. Like this dragon is the size of Harrenhal. (laughs) Instead of it burned Harrenhal. I was like, he swallowed Harrenhal whole. He took a whole tower and swallowed it. Like, all right, y'all. I mean, maybe that one you could probably figure out isn't true, but (laughs) people would be saying some pretty crazy things probably similar to this, like the Targaryens drink blood and the the Targaryens are godless demon worshippers. And I mean, look at what uh, Makoro says about the Drowned God. Now I'm less inclined to disagree with Makoro about calling (laughs) the Drowned God some sort of demon. (laughs) But still, I mean, it's what he's saying is he has no more, he doesn't have any better information than even we do about what the true nature of the Drowned
1: God. So like, it's all just It's all just hearsay, right? You know, I can imagine, just want to say real quick, that Aegon might have been a little bit more aware of the way the world works and how rumors go. And that's why he maybe is over the top sometimes in being just or fair or honorable when he can, right? He wants to make sure rumors Mm, don't spread of tyrannical things that he's doing. So he's making sure to be good when it's time to be good. So those bad rumors can't spread. And Danny's young and inexperienced, but she's i I think it's something that she's learning and people around her want her to be aware of you know
0: yes uh an unfortunate cousin of fear is hate and that is certainly going to be in play here too probably hit danny harder than it ever hit Aegon, because Aegon's a man and westeros is much more accustomed to male leaders much more accustomed to accepting male leaders by by a mile right and danny's also then he's also a foreigner in their eyes probably like she doesn't she's barely from Westeros where Aegon at least lived there he was born there I don't know if that
1: actually matters that much but there's no rumor spreading that Aegon is a witch right right but he just doesn't have to face half the rumors that a woman has to face
0: but Visenya and Rainey probably did have to face those things yeah so they are this element probably is present it's just probably more aimed at his sister I mean yes Visenya definitely had black magic rumors now to be fair Uh, there seems to be some some fire to that behind that smoke. There probably was some black magic in her side, but maybe not. It could be entire. I mean, I prefer to believe it because it's fun, not because it says bad things about her. I think it's cool, (laughs) you know, from the world building. But yeah, what that what people believe in world about her is probably going to be a little darker because of rumors like that. And because she's a woman in power now here, like I said, not directly mentioned in in a, A Feast for Crows, but it is in A Dance with Dragons. Here we go. Quote.
2: Viserys had told her all the tales when she was little. He loved to talk of dragons. She knew how Hall had fallen. She knew about the field of fire and the dance of the dragons.
0: This is sort of like a addition to her first chapter, second chapter introduction stuff in a Game of Thrones, when she's thinking about all these places she's never been, but her brothers told her about, like she thinks of Harrenhal and the Isle of Faces and. The Vale of Aaron and all these things that are just names to her and which is paired with Bran thinking about the Kingsguard. He knew all the stories and he named all these famous Kingsguard and all these famous examples of their deeds, which is all part of the introduction of A Song of Ice and Fire as a care, as a story with many different characters with a very rich history that is a plays a very prominent role. So George is introducing so many of these things early on. And that's why even now, 27 years later, We still have ample reason to refer to these very early parts of the book, which only get expanded on later. I love that part. I love that quote. It really does. It's like Danny's back in book one when she's thinking about the tales that Viserys told her. And uh, yeah, just the Field of Fire. She mentions the Dance of Dragons, too, of course, which is not which is only a good comparison for us now, since it's <laughs> still 130 years away in the actual timeline. Now, it's not mentioned in the Hedge Knight, and it's not mentioned in the Mystery Knight, but it comes up three times in the Sworn Sword. It, it comes up a lot, uh, and it comes up in more, more than just being mentioned. The most notable comes when they're passing through Watts' wood, which had been burned. Like, that fire started there, and it was it, the whole wood burned. The description tells of extreme devastation. It's referred to as a smoking wasteland, which is a description that will also be used about Dorne after the Dornish Wars, So we'll be getting to that in due time. Now that causes Sir Osgrey walking through the smoking wasteland to have a coughing fit. And once he catches his breath, he says, quote.
1: The field of fire must've looked like this, Sir Eustace said. It was there I was began 200 years ago. The last of the green kings perished on that field with the finest flowers the reach around him. My father said the dragon fire burned so hot that their swords melted in their hands. Afterwards, the blades were gathered up and went to make the Iron Throne. Highgarden passed from kings to stewards, and the osgraves dwindled and diminished until the marshals of the North March were no more than landed knights bound in fealty to the Rowans.
0: A lot to say about that quote. So swords melting in their hands. That is a very, that's just a descriptive, a very poetic description there. Because the sword is the, the means at which they win. which they achieve victory it's the primary weapon it's a weap. it's a tool only for killing as we've discussed before a lot of weapons on the battlefield are multi-purpose or farm tools or hunting tools but swords are only for killing people or dragons i guess if you're able to get close to them but no not really you're not usually i don't i can't think of an example of a dragon being killed by the sword actually so never mind (laughs) uh they might have thought that though
1: you can try you can try. Yeah. You're welcome to try. these guys did and they You can try with a rake or a spear or whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> a rake. <laughs>
0: He might not think the rake is a weapon. You might be getting close that way. He's like, Are you going to rake my scales? It might feel good. Like it's a back scratcher, right? Interesting that Sir Eustace's father told him this. That's what he says is, My father said the dragon fire burned so hot that their swords melted in their hands. Well, his father wasn't there. His father wasn't even close to there. His father's father wasn't there. His father's father's father wasn't there. His fa- I could go on for a bit because we're talking about an event that was 196 years before Sir Eustace. Uh, well, Sir Eustace is, in, is old at this point. So, Sir Eustace, we'll say he's 60 ish. So, let's say he was born just after the Dance of the Dragons. So, he's still 130 years before the field of fire even happened let alone being old enough to process it or have even been there that
2: said little did you know his father was the green seer before Raven, <laughs> oh my
0: that's, god that's a
2: hint for my new theory obviously <laughs> no he's a gray
0: seer because he's an osgrave
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's too, super interesting though that the story was passed down because the osgraves probably were at the field of fire like not used as his father not his father's father but but some osgraves or an Osgrave, but probably multiples were there. They were a Marshall house. They were the marshals of the North March. They're, they're a house dedicated to defending that part of the reach. So of course, if there's a, a greater threat nearby within the reach that their, mar- that their King calls them to, I mean, they're gonna be one of the first ones to take the field according to their own values. Their own honor would demand that of them. And there was no, we have no reason to doubt that they've fulfilled their duty in that regard. And they're a great example not only of a house that we know a lesser house besides the gardeners or someone like that that would actually fought on the field of fire, unlike some of these other greater houses, houses that are still big, like Rowan and Oakhart. like they lost some prestige, but they're still among the biggest houses in the reach where Osgray faded into obscurity. And the reason for that is partly the conquest. They're no longer defending they're defending a border no longer needs to be defended and that was their job for thousands of years so their position their place in the hierarchy they're just not needed anymore right we talked about that a lot when we covered the sworn sword but what we didn't necessarily talk about is how much that happened all over they're an example of what must have been happening all over the reach all over the west the riverlands as well just a lot of places well maybe not the riverlands because of king heron Uh, but Lots of places probably the reach most of all though I think they are the best example of this where their position in the world was taken from them not not on purpose aegon wasn't like bah grays you know you're worthless now no it just it was just a side effect of reorganizing the entire realm uh so and and they're not able to stay relevant like you saw what osgrey tried to do what eustace tried to do to stay relevant he he did manipulations and intrigues and tried to join different sides and he's just he wasn't very good at it (laughs) you know it's his house has a tradition of war not of being courtiers i mean there probably were some osgrays at court at highgarden but it clearly wasn't their specialty it wasn't their their angle it wasn't the thing that they were famous for they didn't develop that they didn't work on that they didn't pass down secrets of court secrets of like things that if varis had kids things that he would pass these things down to you know that kind of thing but nope that's not the uh that's not how it went we're gonna play there's plenty of examples like that many that we can imagine many that we can just assume of the old order shaken up and a lot of houses that had you know, noble positions of of value that they could be proud of. It's just, you just aren't needed anymore. Time to retire. And and that's a tough thing for a house that's been around for so long.
1: Or find value in a new thing. Be a farmer, be an engineer, be productive, you know, like, be happy for this new scenario that you have the ability. Which is what a lot of them end up doing. To do something more long-term, to make an investment, to not be killers, you know. And it's very much
0: symbolic of what burning a forest down does right this is a complete fresh start it's brutal everything in that forest died the immediate aftermath is gross and terrifying and you choke at the sight of it and you cough at the fumes and 100 years later it's a brand new forest it looks really nice there's no sign of the devastation and it's pretty good you know it's like maybe you, maybe it shouldn't have happened that way but the current state of affairs that it's become is good you know it doesn't mean it's a justification but it, it's undeniable that this new forest is nice and there's new animals there. And uh, yeah, the Osgraves were themselves like one of those old trees. They're still, their roots ran deep, but now they're just a stump. I mean, I don't know if maybe that's kind of mean, but <laughs> all this is a parallel to Daenerys too, right? Daenerys in Marine, She's trying to make change, she's trying to root out the evil and do good, but like a lot of the a lot of that involves uprooting people that are having okay lives like the older slaves that are now out on the street you know that that example played out both in book and show and it was pretty heartrending. it's like well you understand why danny's doing it and you understand that it's hard to avoid things like this but it's still like damn these guys there's, there's innocent people are definitely suffering here you know these people aren't slavers they're part of this slaver hierarchy but they're not participating in it with force they're just caught up in it you know a slave within a slaver empire like what what power does he have or she so yeah it's even if it's worthwhile there can be awful sacrifices to get there and it's just a really difficult uh position that both aegon found himself and danny it's probably gonna be much harder for her uh the scenario is much different westeros is already somewhat united and but is already at war and in that sense is not united (laughs) and the clear and present danger of this thing from the north is actually happening unlike in Aegon's time where he's just preparing for it
1: uh, at some for some later date you know it's an interesting thought by the way Westeros is probably the least United it's been since Aegon right yeah that's a good point
0: yeah that's actually very true yeah
1: I was gonna say even I wonder during a dance I don't know it as well but I feel like the dance there weren't as the, there were really only two sides right Like right now, there's four or five sides or something. So good point. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: There's more claimants. There's more claimants than there's ever been, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think there were there were never that many.
1: There's more ability for when the dust settles. More likelihood, I think, for when the dust settles, for all the kingdoms not to be under one throne anymore.
0: Yeah. Right. So the reason so many, or so rather so few, resist from here on out is because of all these overpowering examples, that the biggest and most powerful had opposed Aegon and his sisters and lost. So think about will these people submit to Danny after she shows overwhelming force, or will their prejudices or prior loyalties or both prevent them from making the common sense decision, or will there be just other factors that we're not considering that are mixed in? It maybe who knows what kind of propaganda. What kind of b- things people will believe about Danny that may not be true or they've been misled on or whatever, you know.
1: We're also assuming Danny handles things well. What if she just screws it up in multiple different ways that that could, that could happen? So, yeah. absolutely. But we've talked a lot of times about how she could make mistakes. Aegon's seen a play just perfect and it was the perfect moment for everything to happen. That there's all kinds of things that could have been a little differently and it wouldn't have gone as well. So, it, who's to say that Danny maybe even has better intentions and better support? Than Aegon, but it's just the wrong moment she doesn't have the right uh pieces to 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 play you know and, and the optics the optics are
0: different yeah absolutely so others will rush to bend the knee. And it shouldn't be seen as cowardice though I, I mean i wouldn't call it that of course i probably wouldn't have anyway in some cases it is probably <laughs> but in but in other most cases i don't think so i think it's more about wisdom or even ambition because hey Rarely in the history of Westeros is bending the knee so profitable. There's gain and, and climbing of the ladder to be had by bending the knee at the right time or, or with the right circumstances. So, yeah, it, it's interesting to consider that it's not just saving your neck. You can move up in the world by bending the knee here. <laughs> Best example we've seen is next here as Aegon heads to Highgarden. Quote.
1: King Aegon parted from his sisters and marched once for Highgarden hoping to secure its surrender before some other claimant could seize it for his own. He found the castle in the hands of its steward, Harlan Tyrell, whose forebears had served the gardeners for centuries. Tyrell yielded up the keys to the castle without a fight and pledged his support to the conquering king. In reward, Aegon granted him Highgarden and all its domains, naming him Warden of the South and Lord Paramount of the Mander and giving him dominion over all House Gardener's former vassals.
0: Definitely one of the largest promotions we'll ever see <laughs> in Westeros. I mean, because the Reach is the, the most populous and the largest. This isn't just it's a little different than the Tully's getting uh, until game of
2: River thrones Red. when <laughs> braun gets, so <laughs> gets
0: the reach yeah that's Sorry. a bigger promotion you're right because braun was a real nobody or a yeah. sort of you guys he, yes he he hit a few long rungs on the ladder before he, he didn't go directly from sellsword to the lord of the but there weren't very many rungs on that one. He had a lot,
2: less, <laughs> there was a step a lot less honor and a lot less uh, good goodwill towards him than the Tyrells yeah. probably did. Yeah,
0: I gotta think that the the equivalent of Olena saying, Our claim to High Gardens a bit dodgy is like, but not as dodgy as bronze. <laughs> yeah this is this march isn't that far right but it is kind of far like it's not right next door the the field of fire took place in the northern area of the reach and the high garden is you know more southwesterly and he didn't fly ahead on balerion alone he took the whole army there which is a little interesting even though he was rushing he still wanted to come in force so he wasn't maybe maybe not as as in a rush as it might have seemed it's a peculiar line too like it says he's worried about someone else claiming it which is like really who's gonna claim it with Aegon on balerion on his way like who's gonna jump in front of that avalanche like i'll stop here Aegon. i will like like chris pratt in the jurassic park movies he just holds his hand out and balerion stops like oh a hand i can't get past that you know i should have should have thought of that when well they already did stop the green hands you know it didn't work yeah <laughs> we've already shown that the hands holding out a hand does not stop valerian <laughs> unless it's a maybe a real hand works better than so a city. punch
2: him in the nose punch him in the nose now, like a shark like we said yeah <laughs> we talked about this before we just we gotta right. someone has to test this out
0: <laughs> so i don't know about that so this is a good example of us it just it gives me more confidence in our deconstruction of some of these histories saying eh, this probably isn't exactly what happened or they've been probably misinterpreting some things because which is what George intended right he's trying to sort of make it like a real history book, not exactly like one. There's some things he didn't include from real history that I'm glad he didn't. And I've got a couple examples of that later.
1: Nina disagrees with you a little bit. She thinks it might be that someone may have. And I- Yeah. I, I kind of side with her. I, I, Cause I think that even if it's not a smart person, someone might still do it. And it would just be this new headache for Aegon. So it's like, he might have to like split his forces or bring the dragon down or he wants to bring dragon. So he doesn't want to have to, even if he can, doesn't want to have to deal with this he wants the lesson to be made right he doesn't want to, it because if someone yeah. does this and it distracts him someone else is going to do it later and, and if he has to like burn people to make them stop then he then the negative rumors spread about what he's doing it's a lot okay. it's, yeah. it, it might be unlikely that. or unwise for someone to do it but there's a lot of unwise people it's unwise for them to I'm a field of fire, but they did it anyway. So yeah, you're right. We can't assume just because it's a bad idea that they didn't do it. Yeah. Neon took Winterfell. Like (laughs) it it wasn't smart. It didn't last, but it was a pain for Rob. It was a monkey wrench and everything else is going on. So I I can see someone potentially doing it and it being difficult for Aegon to deal with. So.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And you know, Anina uses the example of Argella, who even after her father's beaten, her army's beaten, she's still like, I'm the new storm queen. You know even though like it was hopeless and they're like yeah. uh, no you're not <laughs> so you're right though so that's that's a great example and nina brings up a good point so yeah it, so it is possible it's also possible and here's one here's one i didn't think of until just now given what we just said about opportunity and ambition someone could seize high garden in order to be the one who surrenders it to Aegon, so that the tyrells can't do that so like i want to be the one to surrender high garden to Aegon. and just of course they have very little time to do that that's part of it also it's like well who's Who's got time for this? Like, maybe someone had an army in the field already. Like Tywin was waiting to see what happened at the Robert's or at the Trident, and then he marched immediately to King's Landing. There could have been another army in the field like that that Aegon wasn't aware of. There wasn't, as far as we know, but it's a it's possible.
1: It's extra valuable, they're Pointing out the the intelligence that Aegon could could have if he scouted out ahead of times and got people in the right places and used the dragons. But say the High Towers. What if the High Towers? Perfect said, example. All right, we're we're in charge of Highgarden now. We'll see what Aegon says when he gets yeah. here, but we're going to be in charge. They would have been more difficult to negotiate with, right? Than the Tyrells. That was an ideal situation when the High Tyrells, took, yeah, yes, took took charge sort of and then gave in immediately. It would have been a little different with the High Towers,
0: yes. Because we know what the High Towers did. We know they had their prophecy. We know they surrendered. We're going to talk about that later. But does Aegon know that? Because it seems that's a peculiarity of that scenario is that. Yes, they had that prophecy, the high sept, and he told Lord Manfred Hightower, but it doesn't seem like they told everybody else. It's not like they didn't send a letter ahead to Aegon saying, We already surrender. No, they waited for him to show up. So it was like they were, this was part of why we were very sure that this wasn't just a vision, that this was planned, because it's so yeah. perfect for them. And all the little ins and outs are just so engineered. Like they didn't announce it, even though they were so sure of it. Okay, well, if you're so sure of it, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you surrender ahead of him? Why didn't you show up on the field of fire? to help Aegon, <laughs> right? <laughs> Rather than just stay out of it entirely. So from we when we covered this before it was from their perspective, from Aegon's perspective. He doesn't know what they're planning. Yeah, maybe they're just waiting to see what happens and then pounce on the the weakened winner, like someone they've beat each other up and this is their opportunity. They hadn't used their armies. Yeah, maybe their army was already in the field waiting to 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 make a move. So, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Now imagine. So somehow he learned There's also the chaos of learning what happened. Like, we know all these gardeners were killed, but did Aegon learn that immediately? I don't know about that. Maybe he did because a lot of Reach Lords bent the knee to him, and they might have known this already. But would they really know the chaos of everybody fleeing and running in every different direction? Would they really know for sure that all the gardeners are dead right then? Would they really know that there weren't gardener boys and old men still at Highgarden? They would probably assume that that's the case, even though it turned out to not be the case. They probably would have thought that. You know, they wouldn't have just assumed, oh well, yeah, well... That was probably all of them on the battle there. I probably killed them all, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, I, I, he could not have that kind of confidence until a little time passed. And as we know, one nephew did survive, Quentin Martell of of Gar- of the House of House Gardener. Here, he died three days later of his severe burns. So think about Quentin and how Barriston and, and Masande were kind of watching over him, and it was really horrible because his burns were just. Oh, just the description of them is horrifying. The hope placed in this young burned man. The prayer vigils would have been lit <laughs> both yeah. both sides of it. In other words, people, some people would just be praying like just like, put him out of his misery. We don't if he's alive. That causes all sorts of the war might flare back up again. We don't want that. Other people would be like, he's our hope. He's the one living gardener. We need him to survive so that he can propagate the house and continue. There'd be a wide variety of opinions and, and hope placed under this child, but or this this young man, but either way, he died. As for how Aegon handled Highgarden when he did get there, yeah, it, coming back to the Tully decision, it's a very similar strategy, but even more bold in that sense. Because, yeah, the Tullys had never been kings, neither the Tyrells, but they were lords, and they were lords of Riverrun, a substantial, important castle. The Tyrells do have descent from the Gardeners, as... Olena says, but they don't have land. They didn't have land. Still, let's not think of them as lowly. Steward can be thrown around as like steward, right? And you, if you've watched Lord of the Rings, you've got that same thing. We're like, sit down, steward. They insult, you know, Denethor for being a steward, but that's not because a steward is a low position. It's because he was acting like a king. The same thing here. The stewards are very powerful. I mean, here's a good real life example. Secretary of the Navy. Right in the USA, that's one of the highest military positions there is. The second it includes the Marines. The Secretary of the Navy presides over the Navy and the Marines. It's a civilian post, but it's one of it's. A- it's the presidential cabinet position. It's one of the highest positions in all the military, but some people misconstrue that cause they hear the word secretary and they think that's like someone who types and takes notes and stuff like that. So steward should be thought of as secretary, that type of secretary here. This is someone that runs the finances of the entire reach, you know, <laughs> and they have enormous power. Like it's And like,
1: knowledge They yeah, they would yes. have, they would know all the ins and outs have connections with all the people. They would have awareness of budgets and manpower and and on and on, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's part of the reason they're denigrated is because the other nobles re- see that level of power, but want to point to the thing that they don't have, which is their nobility. Like, you don't have land, though. You know, so they want to put themselves above them, because even though they arguably are more powerful, <laughs> so.
1: Minor, minor correction, Secretary of Navy isn't actually a presidential cabinet position. It's it's under the Secretary of Defense, which is. But it is a... Oh, okay. But still, they're in, like, anyway. a four-way tie for third most third highest ranking after President, Secretary of Defense, then Secretary, of Navy, Secretary, of Army, Chairman, Joint Chief okay. of Staff. It's, it's not to take away from yeah, your point. Yeah, way
0: up there. Yeah, 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 it doesn't change the point of the example. Yeah, you're right. But, a good, but good correction. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, so Nina makes the same point. She points out, yeah, this is the, stu- the Tyrells are very powerful. Don't get lost in the shuffle. Don't believe what you hear about other nobles looking down on Stewart. <laughs> and in fact, Nina gives of another great real world example, the Stuarts, or Stuarts, and two different spellings, S-T-E-U, or E-W-A-R-T-S and the S-T-U-A-R-T, the, the common name Stuart. Those were, those were the high stewards of Scotland before becoming kings of Scotland. So even the name Stuart, Stewart, <laughs> there's a real life example of them ascending to kinghood. So that's, yeah, this is less than that by comparison even though uh, Scotland's a lot smaller than the Reach. Still, (laughs) Aegon's choice was a way to demonstrate how serious he was about remaking the realm as a single kingdom in his vision. Aegon was not joking when he said he would reward those who bent the knee and destroy those who resisted. He kept proving that over and over, whether you're the oldest, grandest family like the Gardners, that doesn't stop you from being destroyed, or if you're a house that's never held land like the Tyrells, that doesn't mean you can't be promoted to one of the highest positions in the realm. It's a new world, new world, y'all, new, big shakeup. It's like, those of you who are fans of The Expanse, you might be familiar with the term, the churn. This is the churn. When the big changes happen at the top, the most powerful people re- change the world as we know it. Little people like everyone else, whether you're in, even really powerful people have very little impact when, when world the world changes. And you just gotta hope you survive it. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. It's, the world's about to be different. Best thing we can do is keep on keeping on and and hope it doesn't ruin us. But we don't have any power over it. And uh, that's the same. That's the way a lot of these Reach Lords found themselves. Like Aegon is making this decision and they have no ability to change his mind. They can argue, they can complain, but it is not going to matter. Oakheart, Florent, Rowan, Peak, and Redwine. Those were the five houses, apparently the most upset about the Tyrol elevation. Recall Oakheart was one of the four commanders of the battle all five of those houses were at the field of fire and the tire rolls were not so that's probably something a- annoying to them as well like we actually fought for the reach and this dude who didn't bent the knee and he gets all the rewards and then the high garden and then the high towers are going to get the same so there's probably a lot of bitterness there too it's like they didn't help and they're getting all these rewards it's like so that's probably some bitterness there <laughs> some bitterness that lingered uh yeah now here's uh here's something kind of unfortunate or, or or missing we'll say we talked about the missing men of gardeners, like, why weren't there old men or children? It's a little convenient or unusual. What about the women? Where are all the women? There's no, they definitely weren't at the battle. <laughs> so, what happened to them? Like, we kind of have to assume some very unsavory things happen, like forcible marriages, people sent to the Silent Sisters, uh, maybe some people getting murdered. If there had been a gardener princess around, a Tyrell gardener marriage would have made a lot of sense to, to lock that up. On the other hand, maybe Aga didn't want that bloodline existing at all. Maybe he wanted to just cancel them entirely so that they never rose again and didn't cause any problems. He might've thought that was a better way to move forward. Just as good we, It's good that we have no more gardeners. Let's just to keep it that way. Now, Nina points out it's especially odd that they're missing if we don't count the martels they're the only pre-conquest royal dynasty which definitely saw at least two queens so they already have shown that women are more likely to hold power as compared to these other uh royal houses in westeros so it's even stranger in that sense so what we have to assume like you are free to look at this as just george making a mistake of george just for just overwriting these women and just ignoring it for some reason there is a lot of economy in the conquest but i prefer to look at it as just we got to come up with an exa- come up with reasons that make sense and fit them make something that fits so that's where i get to this the unsavory stuff that these women were packed off and and quietly sent away dishonorably which is why it wasn't recorded like aegon wanted to look like he was doing things the right way he wanted to look like he was rewarding the right people and doing- these women were kind of innocent so if he's punishing well not kind of they were innocent they're completely innocent as far as i can tell I mean, maybe they weren't, but as far as we know, we have no reason to suspect otherwise. So that doesn't look good, right? It's it's not chivalrous necessarily, even though it is normal. You can see why it wasn't recorded, if that is indeed what happened or if it's the best explanation for what happened. Uh, I mean, Yandel alludes to various houses in the Reach that have... Blood ties to House Gardener. There's definitely houses that have married into House Gardener and vice versa. So, like, the bloodline was definitely not entirely erased. It's it's impossible. It's been eight thousand years of interbreeding and back and forth. There's got to be Gardener blood. Does that matter though? No, apparently not. Not at this point.
1: I can imagine, in addition to some of the stuff you suggested, uh, both like unsavory demises that some of the women might have come to, and Martin maybe not thinking it through, right? He just wanted for this history, the gardeners are gone. The men were all killed in battle. Well, all the men, what about the women, cousins? Like, it, it, yeah. maybe it's not just him not accounting for this, it's the historians. They're It's a new phase of history, mm-hmm. the gardeners are gone. So I, I can see that that could easily be part of it, right? That maybe George even knows that there should yeah. still be some, but that's just, that the history didn't record that for all these different reasons that aren't as entertaining or enjoyable to, to read about or don't make sense to who have been written about by the historians who would also be chauvinistic and biased and all these other things. One um, other potential is that they just went into hiding. They knew they might have <laughs> dangerous futures ahead of them. Mm. Like, you know what? I'm not a gardener anymore, right? Someone might've just chosen to be a flower or whatever, yeah. I'm going yeah. to Essos. Yeah, <laughs> a flower,
0: yeah, yeah. Another possibility here, too, is that he just didn't, you know, he wrote this stuff so early on. He wrote the, this field of fire and burning of Hall, these details in this part of the history, when this was supposed to be a trilogy. He may not have, he didn't expect to have to flesh it out because he wasn't expecting to write fire and blood. And that doesn't mean he couldn't have made these, added these details in, but I, maybe it's just like a matter of, well, he's already settled this. He didn't have to, he didn't go back and revisit the thought process because he had done it so long ago. Uh, yeah, it's possible anyway. There's either with even the setting this aside, there's significant missing pieces because there's always significant missing pieces. There's always I mean, we can never know what's happening in all the places at all these times like that would be absurd for us to have that level of information. And part of the fun is filling in the blanks. You know, sometimes it's a bit too blank, like this might be one of those examples. (laughs) It's better when we can fill in the blanks rather than we kind of have to. That's that's a little that's 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 not as good. But either way, it's fun. Ultimately this is I mean the fun part being imagining what things that will make it work uh, that make it logical or whatever. And this is I this is what I was saying earlier I said I'd come back to an example of real life history doing this. Yeah, real life history does this all the time. We have countless examples of history that is frustrating just as frustrating or more frustrating because it's missing stuff that you can you are baffled by why the sources don't discuss this or don't elaborate on certain details they're still captivating inspire and inspiring but not as much as this in my opinion but that they were they're all we have in other words one of my favorite periods of history and i've said this several times over the course of our 11 or 12 years of doing the show is that i love the the civil wars after the death of Alexander the Great. It's always been one of my favorite periods of history. The successors, the Diodacoi, they're called. But those histories, it, my, one of my favorite periods of history has, the history is very sketchy. The source, the biggest source for those things is Diodorus Siculus. And he has been, he's had a reputation of, as a historian that's gone really up and down depending on what era your you, people were reading him in. Like for a while he was thought as a bumbler. Now he's thought of, okay, actually some of his stuff is pretty good, but now, okay, but it's definitely got some things wrong because there's just like straight up contradictions he contradicts himself several times throughout this i mean there's 27 history books or whatever that he wrote so you know there's bound to be a few mistakes in there but a modern history book wouldn't have these problems like they would they would have an editor that would look through it and catch that and be like okay well this you know to solve this this is a contradiction you can you can present it as a contradiction say we don't know which of these things is true but you can't just like ignore the fact that you just contradicted yourself with a point you made that that goes against something you said 20 pages ago that George doesn't do, thankfully. There's not, there's very little contradictory information in his history books. There is a little bit. There's definitely some, uh, especially with things like uh, Ashai and some of the really ancient stuff. But that stuff you can easily ascribe to the fog of history. But there's a few other ones, but we don't need to talk about those right now. So I'm glad George didn't include that real world problem. But as Nina said, there are other things that maybe he also didn't need to include, like the omission of these women or. The, you know, having Argella marched out in chains naked, that was probably unnecessary. Uh, and it's a little odd too, that they did that. But we have to handle this in a variety of different ways. Um, we can be frustrated, we can be, we can use our imagination, we can do both. So this is how we handle it. Let us know how you handle these things, if you do, or what this thinks, or how this comes across to you. It's an interesting meta discussion within the greater framework, not just of fire and blood, but of all of a song of ice and fire, I suppose or just the world how we how we handle these things all of history let's take a quick break and come back with the second half which will be dealing with Tor and stark and then uh, the high towers good stuff probably Torren stark is my favorite part of this episode but you your mileage may vary this episode is brought to you in part by hello fresh Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50 Westeros and use the code 50 Westeros for 50% off plus free shipping. That's 550 Westeros, not the letters. You can see it on screen there. A crazy schedule can make it easy to fall into your dinner time recipe rut. HelloFresh helps keep things dynamic with over 40 recipes to choose from every week you can't possibly eat all those in such a short period of time you'll always have something new to choose from and that's not 40 for the year that's just 40 at any given time they're constantly rotating new ones in and out so that's a it's effectively a lot more than 40. there's just 40 available at any given time so that really takes the hassle out of meal time planning you get to a lot of the steps are removed you just have it right there for you all the portion sizes are just right and it can also save you money take out fast food all these things are getting more expensive, like regular places, this regular eating out. So it's just a little more incentive to eat at home. But with this, it's sort of a halfway. It's like a instead of, you still get the quality of restaurant food, but it's cheaper and you get to be at home and you get to prepare it with your loved one or loved ones. And yeah, it's just a lot of good stuff that way. We here in in Roswell, we rent out some of our extra rooms in this house that we have to some friends of ours. And that has been really fun sharing our HelloFresh meals. We ordered the bigger ones so we could share it around. And one of our friends that lives here is a really good cook. And he was commenting on how he's learned. He just learned a couple of new things just from following these instructions and these directions that he got from HelloFresh because it wasn't stuff he had cooked before. So just just a couple of things that sunk in and stuck with him. And he's a little bit better of a chef now because of uh, what he learned from this process. So that's pretty cool. Very happy with that. And stories like that make me feel good about pitching these guys. I
1: don't know if anyone watches any cooking shows. I don't watch any of them religiously, but here and there, I watch them. And every time I'm due, I'm like, next time I, yeah, cilantro, huh? Or whatever it is, you know, it's it's neat to get new tools (laughs) and new ideas from whether it's a cooking show or something like that. I wonder if doing it, watching cooking shows might make you appreciate this even more, getting to try these new things, you know? yeah,
0: Probably. That's a good point you know and you mentioned that about about uh certain cilantro it's a great example because that's the number one thing that i just there's so many spices i don't know what half of them do (laughs) you know so someone's like adds this if you see if you go through the process of adding it to something you can be like oh it teaches you like what that goes in or at what point whether you should add it before or after cooking you know whether it should be cooked or added after yeah okay or you learn the okay.
1: that's why i don't like it no wonder yeah (laughs) <laughs> a lot of a lot of things, my cooking experience, I just have to use way more than what I thought. You know, so sometimes seeing a recipe when it tells you how much to use and you're like, that's more than I ever would have used. Well, that's why I never tasted it before. You just got to use more. So.
0: Mm, yeah. Or maybe you just weren't preparing it right. Or yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's that's uh that's our pitch. Go to HelloFresh.com slash fifty Westros and use the code 50 Westeros for fifty percent off plus free shipping. That's America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. All right. Uh, the king who knelt. Let's start off with a quote.
2: It was King Aegon's intent to continue his march south and enforce the submission of Oldtown, the Arbor, and Dorne. But whilst at Highgarden, word of a new challenge came to his ears. Torrenstark, king in the north, had crossed the Neck and entered the Riverlands, leading an army of savage northmen, 30,000 strong. Aegon at once started north to meet him, racing ahead of his army on the wings of balerion the ba- the black dread he sent word to his two queens as well and to all the lords and knights who had bent the knee to him after Harrenhal and the field of fire
0: nina writes what's also notable about this quote is that it suggests urgency on the part of aegon towards the starks he actually saw them as a threat or at least thought that they needed to be handled in a timely manner perhaps before things got too out of hand like take care of them before this gets ugly. Maybe you can, there's still a chance to make them bend the knee before they start, I don't know, attacking the Riverlands or something like that. He's not sure where they're going to go. Or they just head straight for King's Landing and he and they get there and start, I don't know, wrecking the Aegon for, And that just looks bad for him, you know, so he needs to beat them to the punch. So there is urgent, there's several reasons to understand his urgency here. And it may be a little of all of the above or several different factors one thing
1: I think maybe the biggest thing is something I've brought up a few times before is that they can spread their forces it's not that they might go to King's Landing they might go to River Run and King's Landing and the field of fire and if they suddenly Aegon so far has been able to choose the battlefields
0: yes that's true
1: he's fighting where he wants so all his army and all of their army all there at the same but if if suddenly he had to face forces in a bunch of different places, it's much more of a challenge. With the Same reason I thought that it would be tough for him to actually take Castle Rock. He could theoretically do it, but he can't do that and all the other things he needs to do to unite the kingdom. That's a good point. He right now can go meet Torrance Stark on a battlefield full force versus full force. If he waits and army spread out and he rallies more troops and he's on three different fronts, That gets much tougher.
0: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, for all he knows, Torin would have split his army and, and started and gone after multiple targets or tried to pick up allies by, you know, sending them to different places around. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of concerns here. Needed to be done right. So this is what we said back in the beginning, or earlier in past episodes. These, these considerations for bending the knee and and for and the timing is very crucial in a lot of these cases. It's not just about oh yeah, I'll send a letter to surrender. No, these kings they have to be very careful when they bend the knee, why they bend the knee, what their followers believe of hear and understand about that logic, whether it's true or not. Like to prevent rumors from spreading about cowardice or yeah. Uh, anything else right uh, and Torin himself from his perspective like he's heard these stories he's got more information than say Argolak and heron had about the capability of the dragons but he still hasn't seen it in person at least not at first once his army arrives that's a little different which we'll get to in a short shortly but first from that quote it, it says he was planning on marching south to enforce the submission of Old Town the Arbor and Dorn he never actually had to force the submission of the Arbor I think they just showed up and bent the knee with the high towers it's not really made clear there but we never hear anything more about that so clearly they capitulated at some point but Dorn he was go- planning on going to Dorn directly himself and and that would not have gone the way he expected <laughs> as it didn't later either <laughs> but that's a real interesting what if isn't it like mm, an overestimation he may have Been very confident and everyone bending the knee after he taught these lessons but he may have been overconfident and and a couple because there were still holdouts as we see that that of course is what we'll be discussing next week so he may have uh, yeah he may have actually expected doran to capitulate without a fight which clearly was wrong (laughs) so here's what actually happened when the, the northern army got in sight of what they were faced with quote
2: when Torren stark reached the banks of the trident he found a host half again the size of his own awaiting him south of the river river lords westermen stormlanders men of the reach all had come and above their camp valerian meraxes and vegar prowled the sky in ever widening circles Torren scouts had seen the ruins of Heronhall. Where slow red fires still burned beneath the rubble.
0: That's pretty intimidating. <laughs> you're like, okay, so those dragons really are that big, and that castle really is burned, and those dragons clearly did. It. It's like going into the kitchen and finding the dog treats spilled over, and there's a dog sitting there, and you're like, well, I know who did that. <laughs> you see Heron Hall Smoking Ruins, dragons circling over it. Well, two plus two equals four, or three headed. No, never mind. And. Uh, we're, okay, so this is another factor, though. Like, we've already seen the dragons what they're capable of. Torin now has heard the stories and seen some of the evidence. He's also facing a, lar- a larger army than his. Like, he uh, there's more men. Forget the dragons. It's forty five thousand versus thirty thousand. Remember when we talked about the size of the Greek army at the Field of Fire? We pointed out that the one that formed shortly after it was one of the net was maybe the second biggest army. <laughs> Fielded in and that's up to that point because this is forty five thousand men. The reach had what, what was it fifty five thousand. So <laughs> this isn't that much smaller, right? Uh, so with the dragons factored in, it's an enormous superiority. Plus, they're on the other side of the river. If the if Torin wanted to come to grips to make his have his men fight Aegon's, they'd have to cross the river, which is terrifyingly dangerous with the with dragons being right there, especially even without the dragons, that would have been. Very difficult. But Aegon still had to make this show of force because the Northerners are the Northerners. They believe that they're stronger one-to-one than the Southerners. They won't be too intimidated by that numerical disadvantage. The dragons are a different factor in a wild card because they've never encountered that before. But... I don't think they would have looked at 30 at thirty versus 45K as something that they couldn't overcome. They might be wrong, but this is this kind of the Northern
1: attitude. They're more like... They might have been able to overcome it if you take the dragons out because they would have been more yeah. united, yeah. right? This this forty-five thousand yeah. is more hodgepodge True. different people who aren't going to coordinate or trust each other as well as the stark the the northerners
0: that's a very good point you're right these these are these northerners are way more united in purpose and in ideology and in just general loyalty they're all united behind that stark king where everyone everyone else is just recently cowed behind Aegon, and some of them are probably a little bitter about the loss of gardeners and other things so yeah and, and, and they had just fought some of them were were still like injured you know <laughs> or tired like the northerners were fairly fresh so nina also points out that this approach speaks volumes Torin did not take up a defensive position he did not reinforce moat Kalen and sit and wait for the dragons to come and fight them on terrain that was at most advantage to them they marched into the south to confront the man that claimed their land this was says a lot about both their attitude but if we're looking a little deeper there might be some might be a little more to it. it, it Torin might have been cleverer than he seems here. And I'm not saying he didn't seem clever. I just don't really know. He's he's no he's kind of like Aegon. We don't really know his personality. Uh. in other words, He's exposing his army. He's marching away from any potential defenses. The natural benefits of the neck and all that. He just shunned that and was marched right into the riverlands where it's kind of more open, where he'd have to cross a river <laughs> to to fight them, rather than them having to cross a river or swamps or what have you. So he's almost showing his neck right away. He's almost exposing himself right away. Which which to his soldiers, the people following him, that looks brave. It looks forthright. Like we're we're charging right in without you know without hesitation, without any sort of uh, fear but taking up a defensive position if they had taken up a defensive position it sort of implies we're ready to fight where this actually gives Torin the chance to surrender even though his men might not realize that because he gets to witness it before it hits him like if they're hunkered down waiting to be hit that first hit might be devastating because that's what Aegon does he wants to overwhelm you when he if he's coming for you he's coming for you hard he's not going to just test the waters one strafing run see what you do it's all or nothing. And Torrin knows that by now, or at least probably does. So he's like, he wants to have a little flexibility in his strategy even. That's why we make so much out of this, giving up his defense here. He's like, yeah, he marched right there. I think part of that is because he wanted to see exactly what he was facing. He wanted to put truth to the rumors. Because if the rumors were true, I don't know if he wants to do it, but if they're not, okay, then maybe he can fight.
1: I don't even think that he wanted to see what they were facing. I think he wanted to see, he wanted all of the soldiers to see what they were facing. If they take up defensive positions, a couple problems with that. The dragons just fly right over Kalen. They don't stop and fight Kalen, They just fly right. They just burn whatever castle they pick and choose. And all the forces can't run back and forth between castles, right? If you get all the forces together and go south, he can't say this, of course. But everyone gets to see what the threat really is. He probably did. He probably is experienced and wise enough to trust the information he's getting realize it's over not overcomable but also that he can't just immediately give up so get everyone together so they can all see for themselves right and they all go down and then when he surrenders everyone is there for surrender aren't people left over from behind who will dissent or run some ambush raid or so they all get the same motivation by seeing the threat they're all in the same place to know okay this is really it and they all get to have that like gut churning like holy
0: crap that thing is huge and it breathes no wow yeah like without that like feeling it seeing like experiencing it personally you're right i think that i think that's a very strong
1: point point. and it also doesn't work to stay back in defensive because the dragons can fly around a bunch of different targets and you know depending on how things go yeah as i said before they're probably better off across that river with a full force that can be split up to different places Mm-hmm. that that if we and maybe get people to join them right if we're gonna have some chance of stopping Aegon, it's not going to be huddling in our castles wondering which one gets burned down it's going to be going out and attacking a bunch of different places and too much the Aegon can stop so we could at least we'll lose some battles we'll lose some men but we'll win some battles and at least have some negotiating Admin. power and yeah. yes. same thing with this show of force all right Aegon. You can beat us, but we're gonna put up this fight and it's gonna be it's gonna look really bad. You're going to have to burn a lot of people to death. You're gonna have less soldiers and support back home in the north once you take over, right? Like, what's your goal here? They probably have better position better bargaining power by showing up with this full force, too. Even if they theoretically know they're gonna lose, it's still a better position to bargain from.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and it's so
1: I think from a bunch of different angles, I think Torrent did the right thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And it it's it seems so simple, but really when we get into this detail, there's a lot of considerations. It's almost a tightrope walk, and I do think that he he seems to have handled it well. And I, I agree with pretty much everything you just said there. And another thing about the defensive position, like you said, like no one's gonna join him if he's hunkering up in the neck. He's not gonna get more allies, which he probably knows he needs. And that's this comes back to our point about a lot of Aegon's allies just joined him. They may be they're not like super tied to him. He didn't Aren't marriage alliances in place, right? He didn't marry anybody outside of his family, right? So there's there's all this still there. Uh, so yeah, he might be Torin might be thinking, yeah, that he just appointed the Tyrells in charge of Highgarden. I bet I could get some Reachmen to join me. They don't like. They're not going to like that. They don't want to, to serve under the Tyrells. They've got they've got reason to flip sides. But of course, that didn't work out. But those are things that he he could have been thinking about, strategies in mind that would have maybe been valid and as well as yeah you can't just lay down without a fight Uh, i mean he did but he didn't want to just make that his first choice or uh, make that his only option because yeah it looks it does look bad and he has to and and if he's going to do it he has to make sure it doesn't look cowardly and the best way to do that is to make sure everyone sees the threat as he does up close and personal yeah and if he just announces yeah we're gonna march down there and surrender like he loses so much authority he's gonna lose more authority not just that but then when king Aegon appoints him warden of the north everyone's gonna remember that he's this guy that gave up so quickly like he just immediately kowtowed to this threat like is that really the guy you want in charge even from his perspective he's like well i still want to be in charge if i'm going to lose my crown i still want to be lord of winterfell i don't want to like have a whole tyrell or tully situation happened to me i don't want him to just replace me with the boltons or the manderleys yeah right these are other thoughts that would go through his head but it goes even farther than that like you said thirty thousand men that's way more than rob brought so don't forget rob also had some riverlands men join him not a lot because they were in big trouble at that point but the north is also more populous now than it was then most likely to be fair, Rob was in a hurry. He didn't get all the mountain clans and some other folks. But Torrin, uh, yeah, this is part of what you were saying. I think this is why he gathered as many men as possible, so as many men as possible would be witness to what do, what happened in the South, whether it be a glorious victory or a tough decision to bend the knee. You know, At least they would see what they were faced with. Yeah, I totally agree. The witnesses—it's really important.
1: I didn't even think of it till just now, but I—I I wonder if on some level Aegon pieced it together too. Aegon probably knows what's Torrin's going through, and he's like, "I need to get up there with my dragon right away so his soldiers see it. I, I need him to see the threat that he wants his people to see, like,
0: and this giant army and this burned castle. Like they get to see it's a triple threat, right? All that stuff, plus the other rumors." What Harren didn't have, what Ar- Argilac didn't have, what the Lords of the Crownlands didn't have, is what had happened to those people. <laughs> Torin now sees what happened to the Field of Fire. What happened to Ar- what happened to Harren? What happened to the Lords of the Crownlands? What happened to Argilac? So there's a lot more evidence, a lot more people have gone up against the dragons and lost, or one dragon and lost. And here we are with three of them again, with a bigger army than any of these others had faced. So he's really got to be confident to take this to, to violence. And... Clearly he wasn't. (laughs) So he saw Harrenhal with his own eyes and the dragons and the army. And so did all his other lords. So, but there's more than that here. Here's another quote to to carry us forward.
1: The king of the North had heard many accounts of the field of fire as well. He knew that the same fate might await him if he tried to force a crossing of the river. Some of his lords, Bannermen, urged him to attack all the same, insisting that northern valor would carry the day. Others urged him to fall back to Mokalen and make his stand there on northern soil king's bastard brother brandon snow offered to cross the trident alone under cover of darkness to slay the dragons whilst they slept that is wild
0: <laughs> and really cool right from Torren's pov too not only did you mention that he's aware now of all these conquests that just happened but several of them happened in such a short span of time that Heron hall is still smoldering so it's like wow not only did he do that he did it fast <laughs> and here's a huge question mark though Torren's sons we don't know how many he had we know he had more than one we don't hear of them being present there we do hear about them complaining about the result we hear about them bending of uh, the, uh, being upset about the bending of the knee and just being a problem going forward it's a little odd that we don't hear about them being there but if his goal was to make sure as many people saw it as possible you would have thought he'd have brought one or two of them with on the other hand he might not have wanted to bring his oldest son if his oldest son was kind of young Sometimes we see the tradition of at least leaving the Stark. There must be a Stark in Winterfell set aside any maybe supernatural angle to that. It just makes sense to keep your air safe or to keep at least one member of your bloodline out of the fighting, especially when it's something like dragons, which it's pretty hard to keep people out of harm's way when that with that
1: element in. in at present rather maybe he'd heard of what happened to the gardener to the exactly gardens, you know? <laughs> the
0: whole gardener lines were He's like well let's make sure that doesn't happen leave one stark at home like you left i mean rob was left back when ned went south you know there's it's common Benjamin was left at winterfell when ned went south you know all these other things so uh similar examples and not just in the north but this is the north we're talking about so these examples are probably the best to use so if he brings them, they get to also witness it and they also get to see what it is they're surrendering to. But they may not have been old enough. Only one of them may have been old enough. Uh, Nina points out that it's odd that Brandon Snow and these maesters did the negotiating if Torren's sons or one of them was old enough to be in this place. This kind of tells me they weren't, because I, I agree with her that if they were old enough, they would be likely representatives of the king the the princes are uh, very often take that role up It's part of their training part of the, the way these these noble situations are handled and uh but they don't brandon snow and the maesters are the ones passing these messages back and forth apparently and the lack of the son's involvement may be part of why they're upset later but it may maybe it's more likely to just assume they were too young or if there was an older one he wasn't there because he was back at winterfell
1: yeah to to the point we made earlier about Torrent wants all the soldiers to see, not just that he wants to see. I think he was ready. I think he had seen or heard enough, but he knew that all the people would need to see it with their own eyes. His sons didn't see it with their own eyes and they're upset. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I think all the other Lords went, saw the dragon, saw the field of fire, saw hall went back home being like, okay, good thing we bent the knee. But anyone that didn't see is like, oh, that Torrin Stark, he's the one that knelt, you know, they 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 don't realize the other option is they would be dead. Yeah, yeah. And
0: we will be talking about this more because this is a thing. We've talked about the Starks under the dragons. We had episodes on that. But some of this is we've added a few new details that we're going to we're going to want to mention as we go through the years here in Fire and Blood. Now, what about this Brandon Snow business? Not about him being the envoy, but about the assassination of the dragons. Several takes here. Was Brandon simply another overconfident man, not cr- truly grasping what he was up against? Maybe not. Maybe. That's possible, but I wouldn't jump to that conclusion automatically. I would simply consider that as one possibility, and it, and it may only be part of the picture. What means did he intend? How was he going to assassinate them? Well, we really only have one guess there. Was he the figure in Brand's Weirwood vision making Werewood arrows? At first, when the Dance of Dragons came out, a lot of people thought that was Bloodraven. Enough time has passed, enough analysis has been done, doesn't really make sense that it was Bloodraven. Why was Bloodraven making Werewood Arrows at Winterfell? When was he ever even at Winterfell? And and the timeline, the order of the visions doesn't necessarily support that either. It does support this. It does support someone making Werewood Arrows. Uh, The time of that vision in in relative position to the others does support the possibility that this is it. Nina agrees. Nina thinks it is him. He's the one there. And uh, it wouldn't have been the worst plan in the world. Tyrion himself notes that the eyes are the most vulnerable part of a dragon. Their eyes and the brain behind them. That's how Meraxes was killed. There's a few other examples, and yeah, if he can sneak into a Targaryen camp, get a clean shot, which shouldn't be hard if the dragon's asleep. You know, shoot a weirwood arrow into their eyeball. Might yeah, that might kill it. It might work. I don't know how you get all three that way, but even if you only kill one, that's pretty substantial and. It would send a big message to the world that the dragons can be killed. Even if they only kill one of them, all of a sudden it's like, oh, actually, we thought these things were unbeatable basically, but someone proved otherwise. So that would change a lot. It would, it would affect the picture continent-wide. Uh, so, but, but apparently Torrin was like, was he was not talked into this. He was not moved by this possibility.
1: It assumes and... a lot too, like say you sneak into the Targaryen camp and get captured and held hostage. And now Aegon is mad that the King's brother snuck into my, like it gets a lot worse, right? Or yeah. what if you sneak into the camp and you don't get caught, but the dragon's not asleep or not there, or you know what I mean? Like just, <laughs> yeah, you can't yeah, put yeah. your stake in this plan. <laughs> yeah.
0: 20 good men will not cut it here <laughs> or 20 good whatever arrows. So yeah, it's really interesting to think if there's maybe a vision, like if there's some, some magic involved here as well. Maybe there's a supernatural angle to this, uh, a dream or some vision. Maybe someone saw the dragons dead in a in a vision or a green dream, but they're actually seeing something farther in the future, or I'm making my way through a Clash of Kings right now. I'm doing a reread, and I'm right at where Bran is arguing with the green dreams, and Mira is too, and Jojen's just like, nah, y'all. Green dreams happen like you can't get away from it, but we can interpret them wrong. That's the one out is that yes, just because I see this happening doesn't mean I've interpreted it correctly. It's gonna happen, but maybe not in the ways that it appears to me. So, this is a possibility for this example as well. There could be a green dreamer in the mix, or maybe Brandon Snow himself, or who knows, but uh, it's possible. So, it's poison, but that's unlikely. That's not really a northern means of neither is uh assassination but this isn't necessarily assassination let's talk about that more in a second here now so the reason i think it's not as insane as some of the others is he's not he's not like he's acting like he's going to face them in open battle like like a lot of these other kings did he's got a plan to it's a subterfuge plan, it's intrigue so it's not you can't judge it quite the same it's i wouldn't call it insane like facing the dragon headlong is But that doesn't mean he wasn't underestimating the dragons, as as you said, Sean, it doesn't mean it was a good plan. It just isn't, maybe isn't crazy.
1: You said it's not the worst plan in the world, but- You need more, that's a low bar. The, the bar's yeah. gotta be higher than not the worst plan in the world.
0: <laughs> it needs to have a chance of success, not just, know, oh, it's the second worst plan in the
1: world. <laughs> yeah. Even a halfway point plan between the worst and the best, still, I don't and know, that is, thats, that's that. like even better than that, man. That's an average plan at best, yeah.
0: (laughs) So let's have the next quote here, right now.
2: All through the night, messages went back and forth. The next morning, Torrin Stark himself crossed the Trident. Thereupon the south bank of the Trident, he knelt, laid the ancient crown of the kings of winter at Aegon's feet, and swore to be his man. He rose as Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, a king no more from that day to this day tauren stark is remembered as the king who knelt but no northman left his burned bones beside the trident and the swords aegon collected from lord stark and his vassals were not twisted nor melted nor bent
0: yep they were unbent swords (laughs) but their knees were bent I do wonder about these letters back and forth, what was being said, what sort of information was passed back and forth, given the intermediaries, it's a little less likely to me that dreams were discussed, but that doesn't mean they weren't discussed in purpose or in person once he did cross. But at that point, he'd already decided to kneel. So, hmm, yes, that's a, it's a bit, but maybe Brandon Snow was willing to discuss his brother's dream. Maybe the maesters were excluded from that. Doesn't mean the discussions weren't had. It just would have been very they would have had to be very diplomatic about when they spoke about it and very cautious about who they said it in front of. So the r- the possibility absolutely exists, but it's it's hard to, it's obviously hard to suss out any specifics
1: here. The fact that they went back and forth a lot adds to part of my reasoning as to why Torn Stark bringing this whole army forward gives them more bargaining power. They're bargaining. That's what's mm-hmm. happening yeah, here. They're like, hey, look, we want X y bad Z aegons like no they're like all right we'll we'll go to war we're like all right we'll we'll go to war and we'll beat you like you might beat us but you're gonna have to split your dragons up and fight us in three different places you're gonna look bad to yeah. the rest of the north when you do conquer me because they're all the orphans and wives at home whose fathers you just killed are not going to follow you you you're, you're that, i this is what i think with the back and forth more works, chance for bad right? blood yeah all the ifs ends yeah. of if we do this battle or not and what i want is keep winterfell you know keep keep my yeah honor okay you know et cetera et cetera what's
0: it worth to you to avoid that hassle he's not going to praise it like that because that sounds like it's a it's a he's looking for a bribe but basically that's the the diplomacy the 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 clever language that's used by people who are good at this sort of thing to not make it look like a capitulation to make it look like a to, to keep the bargaining under subtle while the important points are covered as maintaining honor maintaining certain other things yeah and another consideration here, okay, so Brandon Snow's willing to assassinate the dragons. Was he willing to assassinate Aegon himself? I'm guessing no, but it's absolutely a worthy consideration. I think it's just a little outside of their morals, their, their codes of honor. But there wasn't a Kingsguard yet, so if he did want to do it, it would have been a little easier, or maybe a lot easier than before. Aegon, maybe he was still a little, maybe he was overconfident. Visenya did point that out to him later, like, bro, you're overconfident about your own personal safety. And then she went about proving it by cutting his face. But (laughs) so she really, apparently, really needed to make a point uh, there—the point of her sword, as it turns out. By the way,
1: it's a little outside of their code to, uh, you know, assassinate someone, if you will. But it's also outside their code to kneel. So I I can see that. Hey,
0: we—that's true. We
1: have this code, but it wasn't accounted for dragons. So maybe we got to reevaluate our code. Hmm.
0: I'm not sure I fully agree with that. I think kneeling is within is acceptable. Like I'm not sure. Like it's you don't do it lightly but i don't know that assassination is ever acceptable you know what i mean and by their value system but that's, that's a gray area i see what you're saying I, won't, I don't fully disagree but i'm not sure about that we'll say
1: i should also clarify it might be outside of their value code but maybe not one person yes. and that might also be i think the point is right. made in the document here that that might be part of why he sent brendan and not some other person because he did trust that he would not assassinate him ah, <laughs> like someone yes. else might do something crazy in there yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, and he also
0: he didn't maybe that's part of why he didn't send his own son because maybe he, maybe his son was a little less capable or he's a little doesn't want him being like seized whereas like if he loses his bastard brother it's not a not as big a deal now this is where it gets really gray too because sabotage is not ignoble that's there's nothing wrong with sabotage you're allowed to do that, that that's a that's fine according to the rules of war but, but with assassination like look at stannis and Renly. Like, stannis just just will not admit that he did that <laughs> you know he he doesn't it's an uncomfortable subject for him and he's like kind of in denial about what really happened there he's like i when i woke up my hands were clean you know like were they were they <laughs> and because like but if it was acceptable i think he would have just said it like he's like no that was he's my brother's a traitor i mean which he did say other times like my brother deserves death because he's a traitor you know but if he bends the knee i'll forgive him so he's just not going to admit that he's a kinslayer. He's not going to admit that he engaged in something that's dishonorable because it's, it's, it doesn't look good. And and he doesn't want to think that he did it, which is
1: very kind of the human aspect here. And he's able to deny it. Like how many people would believe this story? So, he, you know, if he wasn't able to deny it, he might have to face it differently or, or you know, own up to it differently. Yeah. Technically, his hands were clean. Metaphorically, no way, <laughs> you
0: know, but technically, you know, physically speaking. Yeah. So like here's another example like in uh the north nina brings up the point of john being ordered to assassinate mance raider by the other like by uh alistair thorne and and janice Slynn. he's like damn it I, this isn't what we do this is really ignoble he's like he doesn't even he's not even doesn't even mind the part that it'll get him killed he's like <laughs> he's like yeah i'm gonna die if i do that but that's not the part that bothers him he's like this is really uh just not okay like this is a diplomacy and envoys you really shouldn't do that sort of thing like even when Argalak did that cutting the hands off an envoy that was a really big deal like most of westeros agreed with Aegon and that was Argalak was 100 in the wrong there so yeah. And then the quote is it, John considers it, quote, foul enough to slay a man in his own tent under truce, let alone the other aspects of this. So another example that I've thought of here right before this, right before we went live today, in fact, about an hour before was when they were willing the Westerners and Riverlanders under Jamie. So this is Feast for Crows era when they're willing to f- feast and dance, really, when they're willing to sneak attack Riverrun at night to open the gates but when one of them throws out the idea oh yeah and we can smear night soil on some arrows and assassinate blackfish that's when they're like no that part they're against and it starts an ugly argument between Frey and Piper which leads to Jamie thinking man they would never do this in front of Tywin, (laughs) you know which which leads me to wonder what Tywin would have thought of the idea of assassinating blackfish with night soil he might have been like okay with it if it was done under wraps but I don't know i don't know but either way it's kind of off time would have been
1: okay with it for sure i, I think, think yeah maybe time's yeah. okay drowning people don't yeah. okay keep drowning women and children who aren't at war you know what i mean like yeah i think he would be okay with it yeah probably
0: he but he i mean he didn't want to his hand his he didn't want to be known that he was part of the red wedding you know i think he was fine for people to suspect it but didn't want it said openly. Okay. so yeah it's, it is a little i think you're right but it's there's still some nuance to what he wants people. i think he wants people to suspect it rather than that He's known for doing it, but maybe, maybe you know. His
1: response would be something like, "I don't want to hear of this." Ah, you could, yeah, yeah, okay,
0: yeah, Mm, okay. That might be. I could see that maybe being his
1: way of handling it. That's a good point. Now go do it. In parentheses, you know, yeah. Nina says this. This.
0: This all may have been a way for Torin to put himself on more equal footing with Aegon for, like you said, for negotiations, for for bargaining, for like having leverage and things like that before he had stepped foot onto Westeros for the purpose of invasion. Aegon had tried to use his own bastard brother to make an alliance with Argyllac. Right. He used Oris as a bargaining chip to marry Argella, And obviously Argyllac was extremely unhappy with that. That led to the whole hands cut off envoy business. And now Torin is using Brandon Snow as a go between, as a diplomat, as an envoy. And he maybe believed that this would, might insult someone from the Reach or from, from another house being treated, or have a bastard treating with them because they're so high and mighty in that regard. But Aegon had already done this with his own bastard half-brother. So it was kind of like, maybe they were hoping to expose him in a hypocrisy or just saying, okay, well, he, he doesn't see bastardy the same way that the rest of the Seven Kingdoms has for so long because he's from House Targaryen and you know, they've only been here a hundred years and they don't
1: look at bastards the same way and et cetera. Maybe it's a way to share values in in some form, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, did the North have the most to lose or the least? I don't know. I suppose it depends on how soon the next winter was going to be and how long they needed it to last or expected it to last. Like if winter was imminent then Torin would have been very wary about sending all these men to fight unless when the harvest had already been brought in, then it would be like, okay, then we might be very eager. It might be the opposite where he's like, well, we too many mouths to feed. So dying in battle is actually a plus. That's a really interesting like fork in the road here in, in, in trying to figure out what was on their minds. Because if the men were needed for the harvest and the North has the most to lose by losing men, they're, they're not only gonna lose people they're going to lose the people that whose labor is needed to survive the winter it also matters how long of a winter they were expecting if it was expected to be kind of a shorter winter they might be willing to be more risky if the if they were on the tails of on the heels of a long summer they'd be expecting a long winter Ah, that's a really big part of the consideration that the south wouldn't care as much about it wouldn't matter as much to them if you're willing to die a glorious death in defense of your homeland but then the threat is removed like there's no longer a threat to your homeland because your king surrendered. Then you shrug and go back home. You might not be happy about your king kneeling, but you're no longer all fired up to defend your homeland because there's no threat. But if you're looking, if you came south because your goal was a glorious death in battle, so your family has enough to eat come winter, then you are very unsatisfied here. You, you did not. You intended to die. You wanted to go to Westeros Valhalla with a sword in your hand <laughs> dying in battle, not starving, not being a burden to your family. And unfortunately, we don't know when winter was coming or how far the last winter had been, nor how big of a winter it was going to be. So all we can do is float these ideas and show you if we had that missing piece, we could have a a very strong guess as to what their attitudes might have been, at least a large majority of them. Now, here's a fun quote, one that I found during because of my recent reread because the field of fire is not actually mentioned here nor is Torin stark he's but it's very clear who's being spoken of it's renly talking to catlin quote
1: i mean to be king my lady and not of a broken kingdom i cannot say it plainer than that 300 years ago a stark king knelt to aegon the dragon when he saw he could not hope to prevail that was wisdom your son must be wise as well
0: yeah this is Renly saying, look, Rob can call himself a king if he wants, but he still has to bend the knee to me. King is just a title, but I need fealty. That's what matters. Duty, loyalty, that he must give me. So he's willing to be flexible on titles. Like, he doesn't even have to give up his crown. He can still call himself king. So it's kind of like, a, it's, a, it's sort of a diplomatic solution there. It's like, he doesn't even have to give up his title. He just has to acknowledge that it's subordinate to mine which is kind of clever on Renly's part. (laughs) It's one of those things that makes you think Renly would have been pretty good at compromising more so than most kings. Maybe not like compared to a regular guy, but alas, that's irrelevant now (laughs) in terms of outlook. It's interesting in analyzing his character, but yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with what's going to happen. And we've talked about how Stan has had a lot of parallels to Aegon, as we've said, and this is... Probably a similar, this is something that Stannis and Renly might have agreed upon. Now, Stannis would not have agreed on that he can keep his crown part, but otherwise he would be like, yeah, if he bends the knee to me, we're cool. That part he would have a similar attitude about. And overall, though, the kneeling of King Torin, it doesn't have quite the ringing out effect. Like it doesn't echo through the centuries like the Field of Fire or the, Burning of Hall does, but those were more exciting events. But still, it's very remembered, very important, and has a lot to do with the story. Like, what's the North going to do? Is the North going to capitulate? Is John going to bend the knee to a greater king? Is he going to submit to Danny or someone else? Or is that even going to happen at all? Or something similar to that so and the mysteries associated with too like we just brought up a lot of things about what Torrin might have been thinking about or might not have the same some of these same factors will be applying in the modern story as well considerations with regards to winter considerations with regard to the others considerations with regard to the wall considerations with regard to the state of winterfell house bolton house Manderly, all these other power players in the north winter coming yeah, or, or is has come, if we want to be specific. Yeah, either way, it's a huge factor. And so there, here, we have m- a more idea of what's happening in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, unlike uh, in Fire and Blood, where there's several, quite a few more missing pieces. But here's another example of it being remembered in A Song of Ice and Fire,
1: in a form other than memory. At the end of the dock, a flaking shingle swung from an old iron post, painted with the likeness of a king upon his knees, his hands pressed together in a gesture of fealty. Jamie took one look and laughed aloud. We could not have found a better inn. (laughs) Is
2: this some special place? The wench asked, suspicious.
1: Sir Cleos answered, This
0: is the inn of the kneeling man, my lady. It stands upon the very spot where the last king in the north knelt before Aegon the Conqueror to offer his submission. That's him on the sign, I suppose.
1: Torrin had brought his power south after the fall of the two kings on the field of fire, said Jamie. But when he saw Aegon's dragon and the size of his host, He chose the path of wisdom and bent his frozen knees
0: if you recall this is the inn where the innkeepers turn out to be working with the brotherhood without banners to try to set up brienne jamie and Cleos for an ambush which they smell (laughs) they sniff that out and they point out that the former owners of the inn are dead the implication implication being they were killed by tywin's reavers gregor or lorch or hote and so these these people just came along and took over this empty building and are using it to facilitate <laughs> ambushes on people they don't like, which, to be fair, these were Lannisters, they were trying to do that, too. At least they s- assumed Brienne was one at that point. Now, two chapters later, Arya and her compatriots are led there by the Brother Without Banners, Tom and and Lem, who have just found them and sort of tricked them into becoming their prisoners. And Arya sees the end, she says, it looks friendly with a whitewashed upper story and slate roof. That's her like description of it. She doesn't realize the kneeling king on the sign is her ancestor that's kind of fun. There's several things that, that pass by Arya that, that deal with her, her family that she doesn't know about like the the Elmar Frey thing when she's like, I hope your princess dies. No, no, Arya, that's, you're talking about yourself. Those kind of things. Like a lot of little things like that happen with her and she just passes by evidence of her own family or, or ties to her own family, it's fun. Uh, the ensuing conversation proves that there was indeed an ambush plan, like the, the, they have this conversation with Angai and Lem and Tom, and it's like, yep, they were planning on ambushing Brienne and, <laughs> and Jamie and Cleos, and but they uh, figured that out. Arya introduces herself as Squab here, uh, you know, when she first meets uh, these Brotherhood Without Banners people, and then she meets Harwin there, which is... Kind of neat that this happens at the end of The Kneeling Man. It's a a reunited, someone who used to be a Stark, but he bent the knee to someone else to a different cause. So he also bent his knee to a different cause. He's no longer a Stark man. And this is where Hot Pie decides to stay behind. And this is not to be confused with another inn that the Brotherhood Without Banner controls, where Gendry is found by Brienne. And he mistakes her for, or she mistakes him for Renly (laughs) in her fever dream state. And Gendry does look a lot like Renly. But yeah, this is not the same inn. So uh, there's a couple of those. So. George could not have written a better inn. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't actually hear any more of the end of the kneeling man. I, I kind of assume we'll find out more about it later. It'll come up again at some point. Maybe we can assume it's still in the hands of the Brotherhood Without Banners, but the bread is better there because hot pie has taken over that. So <laughs> now, Torrin Stark is also mentioned when his statue comes up, right? Because the brand there's multiple cases of brand down in the crypts. And talking about the statue, well, actually, two very specific cases of him naming statues. So Torin Stark and the historical Torin Manderly, uh, or Torin Karstark rather, and Torin Manderly. There's lots of people named after Torin. That's telling, right? He, his name was not shunned thereafter. It wasn't, oh, this is an embarrassment of a king that we all hate because he knelt. No, people kept naming their kids after Torrin. That's very meaningful. There'd be even another Torin Stark, right? Cregan's sons, Edric and his granddaughter, Serena, had a Torin. So, I mean, that's only 200 years later, 180 rather than, you know, 300
1: years later or 250 or something. So, yeah. That's heartening to me because I I think of Torrin as being a, a hero, as being a brave, wise hero for having knelt. And, uh, yeah, like, seriously. And I, 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 Amen. <laughs> there's at least some amount of resentment towards him that I pick up through the books, but it seems like overall, that's not the case. It seems like that was maybe a little bit in the wake of when it happened, but now looking back, like you said, people are naming their kids after him. So
0: yeah. Right. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. And it's also like, yeah, I agree with your general point that it, it, it does take courage to kneel sometimes based on what the alternative, because he knew he would get pushback from his own people you know he knew it wouldn't just be as simple as who got out of that now let's go home and drink you know <laughs> like no no the problems continued he, he knew he would have more problems and he knew that yeah so he was it was a rock and a hard place type situation
1: but it's a rock and a hard place for him but for his people it's just a fiery death you know like he's taking on yeah yeah the toughness of this decision for everyone else's benefit
0: yes the burden is on him and he's he's taking on, taking on rather than right making them take it on because it would have been pretty easy for him to maybe not easy from a mental standpoint but like from a strategic standpoint to just send people to their death and just he could stand back and be like oh
1: no they had dragons i guess we'll surrender now but to do it up front yeah he saved all their lives and just took a hit to his and his family's honor or or convenience of life or whatever but to save countless thousands of yeah. lives
0: so catelyn thinks when rob's crown is being made about the kneeling of Torin, and that no one knows what happened to Torin's crown after it was handed over. Not only was Torin the last one to be a Stark King until her son, who was the next one, right? But the crown made for Rob was supposedly a replica of Torrin's, a, brown, a bronze with nine black iron spikes wrought in the shape of long swords with runes of the first men all over it. So it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that crown didn't have a a good result either, although it is we do know where it is. At least we think we know where it is. So during the first chapter of A Clash of Kings, she's seeing it be forged, kind of like in Danny's first chapter of A Clash of Kings, her blood riders are gushing over her dragons, understandably. Now here she's looking at the last thing that happened in the Game of Thrones, her son being named King. And here she goes thinking about this crown and she's the one that has it now. Of course she's also dead at this point <laughs> but she's still walking around unlike him so she's got his crown that's the last place we saw it she was looking at it right before executing what's his name the fray in the epilogue uh yeah that guy and lord Torin returning home without the crown is going to bother people it's like an extra bit of symbolic weight like his sons maybe if they weren't there like dad you came home without the crown that's terrible <laughs> and that's gonna be a problem going forward that will give us reason to revisit the north as i've said however yeah there's whew, there's a uh, also the swords being laid at aegon's feet it says that they were laid they were not burned this kind of says to me that they did the big processional where every single lord and maybe a lot of others like high-ranking people had to walk and lay their sword at aegon's feet until they had all done it because all the swords were surrendered. Just think of the logistics of that. All these swords being surrendered. No, that 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 takes a while. <laughs> like, all right. Obviously, ice wasn't surrendered. Torin didn't surrender his Valyrian steel blade. That might have been part of the negotiation. That might have been one of these, like, yo, I'm not surrendering my sword. Let's be clear. I will surrender a <laughs> sword. <laughs> a nice one. Like, the one that I don't use in battle, because I don't use ice in battle anyway. But, like, let's be clear. I'm not giving up ice. <laughs> you can have my crown. <laughs> you can have it. At first, Aegon would like, no, you got to give me that. And He's like, come on, man. Like, let's... This is this is too far. Egon's like, all right, fine. I can see Aegon bending on <laughs> but... that pretty quick, actually,
1: he, he understands the, yeah. the value of heirlooms. Yeah, this agree. one just happens to be a sword, you know, like. Right, the he crown, yeah. hey, I think he would have stood his ground on, the crown.
0: <laughs> yes, the crown you got to give up. Yeah, I agree with that.
1: That's more symbolically important. Yeah.
0: Torrin might have understood that. And then might have been a bargain was like, okay, like they may have, he might have been like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I know I'm going to have to give my crown, but I'm going to act like I, I'm going to use it as a negotiation leverage to keep my sword. <laughs> like that's the one, I that's the really valuable one. And even though even though the crown is more important symbolically, ice is clearly yeah. yeah. replaced like, by a mile by a mile. Like like they just when Rob needed the crown, they just River Run Smith just did that. Like just boom, made it. Took them probably like a week, you know. Like no, you're not replacing ice like that. Uh, so to add to all the Neil, so that's just actually backing up slightly. That's a really just quite a thing. It would have taken like. Maybe days to get through everyone laying their sword like other thirty thousand men. Maybe not all thirty thousand did, because not all thirty thousand
1: would have even had a sword. I bet most did not right. have swords, in fact.
0: Yeah. There may have only been like
1: five to eight thousand swords out of that thirty yeah. thousand. Still five to eight thousand. If you do one a minute, that's days.
0: <laughs> yeah. If each guy is kneeling and you know, and laying a sword down and kneeling, yeah, that's that's a it lot. probably would
1: have been a process of like each captain gathers up the eight swords of his soldiers and in each, you know, each Lord gathers up the 30 swords of his four captains and then they bring them up together. And, but I, I also envision it happening, not just at the feet of Aegon, but, right next to belarian
0: oh yeah
1: just to drive it home just so then when it go back home they can explain mm-hmm. why they gave up their sword you should have seen that dragon's teeth were bigger than my sword what do you want from me man <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah so
0: she was there for torrens kneeling i mean she meaning Visenya and so is Rainey's. don't forget those that all three of them were there so this is a very like dramatic in terms of all the people that were there all the presence all the like nobility and royalty and just it would have been very dramatic and if this is ever put on tv they're gonna they're gonna do this one very cinematic it's a
1: who's who's of kneeling and sword surrendering (laughs) (laughs) yeah right
0: (laughs) so though we covered it in a separate episode recall that if you listen to that episode vicenya didn't actually settle things in the veil at this point this was still ongoing it was at this point that she after Torrin's kneeling she returned to the veil and then settled things which went pretty quickly even though they were very set for defense she just you know flew past it all which as we pointed out that's might have been what happened if if Torin had set a bunch of defenses they might have just like flown right over it and been like bye like that good job on the defense there i'm just gonna bypass it all (laughs) you know go right to winterfell or something and scoop up a stark child or something you know wouldn't have been quite the same but that, that option clearly was available <laughs> in some form or fashion. So she was there for Torrin's kneeling, went, went, went back, finished all that off. And it, it fits nicely, though, in this timeline of just so many kneelings happening all at once or really close to the same time. Meanwhile, Aegon headed for Old Town after the Stark submission and Rhaenys headed for Dorne, which, of course, would not go so smoothly. Now, uh, we were planning on doing Old Town today, but I think uh, we probably don't fully have time for it. So we'll come back to that and uh, discuss it at the beginning of the next episode, which is where we're going to be dealing with the people who didn't kneel. So that'll still be fun because the actual coronation happens during this visit to Old Town. So this is when it's most clear who is not submitted and who has. And it's not always... So, as simple as they didn't submit we'll see that at the iron islands the reason they didn't submit theirs there is no single leader to lead them in submission whereas in Dorne there was but they were still very united on not doing it so a lot of that well that's going to be a lot of fun but we'll start it off with old town and looking at this from the targaryen perspective because we have already looked at it from the high tower perspective and there are some big differences here.
1: One thing I, I you know, I'm not as versed on all this. I haven't, and as versed, however versed I am, it's newer for me than a lot of you guys. So I wonder, thinking about how Aegon could have, should have handled Dorne. I was mm. started thinking about it when I thought that when he, when he turned to go deal with Torrin, which seemed like the right thing. But what if he hadn't? If he had gone right to Dorne at that moment, maybe Dorne wouldn't have been as ready maybe he would have had some success there if they hadn't been as organized or come up with a plan Uh, okay i'm I'm not sure if that's the case but i it's something i started thinking about like if maybe he should have gone to certain regions rather than straight for the head of the snake if you will you know
0: yeah yeah and you're right too like if he had gone straight there like did he know he was going to have a second coronation in in old town before he got there was that In the back of his mind, or like a dead set plan, or did he even think of that at all? He may have already considered himself crowned and was like, you know what? Actually, a second coronation is a really good idea. But it may not have occurred to him or been something that he thought was important until the high towers and be like, you should do this. You should be crowned by the high septon. Look how important that. Look how valuable that is. He may not have even known it was an option. Maybe he, for all he knew, the the septon was going to like fight him or something. Because again, we pointed out he didn't know that they had decided already to bend the knee. He, but they just didn't tell him in advance. Maybe probably because they were waiting
1: to see if he actually made it
0: (laughs) if he actually got there
1: I wonder too if the idea of him being coronated and declaring himself king of Dorne might have added to Dorne being like what we'll see about that whereas if he had gone to treat with them first negotiated like he did with Torin in some way hmm Right on. Yeah, that's a good, that's a clever thought. Dora might have had an extra chip on her shoulder over that coronation, you know?
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, that's a good, that is a very good point, yeah. So yeah, the fact that the, the order of the coronation may be, uh, may be insulted by that. He'd already said, he'd already sent the letters out and he'd already been crowned on the Blackwater. Some people may have already felt that way, but like this this may have this just- A little more public. It mean, may have increased that feeling and, and because so many yeah. people supported it. Yeah, a lot, yeah, a lot more public. And they're yeah. like,
1: hey, what are we over here? Yeah, what are we, chop liver? You didn't treat with us like you did, Torum. we didn't- been the knee to you like let's get a plan together for when he comes you know if they didn't have the plan yet yeah know? it's a good point it does sort of show
0: contempt for the regions that hadn't bent the knee yet it's like well y'all don't matter like i this is i've subjugated the ones that do matter you guys are an afterthought i'll come i'll get to you later like like the iron islands and the three sisters and and dorne which who
1: would be the most insulted by all that i
0: think <laughs> by far if they weren't already deeply insulted
1: probably but. everyone would have just been better off if Dorn just Did bend the knee, right? Like probably a lot of (laughs) unnecessary deaths and instability occur because of it. I I don't- But you understand why they didn't. Yeah. yeah, Reasons I hadn't thought of before are are bubbling up in me now. They have more time to plan. They got together strategies to avoid the dragons. Aegon had been able to meet everyone, full force versus full force in his place of choosing pretty much. Dorne's like, well, we're not gonna do it that way. You see what I mean? They, They got to learn lessons and come up with new plans with this extra time they had and had extra chip on her shoulder because it's coronation like I wonder if he had been able to go straight there instead of seeing torn first if it might have played out differently
0: yeah yeah because another factor there like you said just to add to that is that just the coronation is like the, a big deal they should have been invited it should have been part of it they should have been at it like that's it's like having a royal wedding but you like don't invite one of the great houses to it they're like that's a huge snub now and this is not quite like that because they're still in resistance. They're open, you know, in open resistance. But but Aegon from the book, it sounds like Aegon was expecting them to submit. So from their perspective, you expected us to submit, but you got crowned before that. Nah, like yeah, that's insulting to them, you know, and to to not just to the Prince of Dorne, but probably to a lot of like rank and file Dornishmen, common folk who are like. Yeah, why are we the afterthought here, you know, and, and certain leaders might fire them up like that. Might yeah, might play
1: off that. Exacerbate
0: yeah. that by, yeah, inflaming their, their anger with the Targaryens for bringing that up and just making it about their nationality and their ethnicity. Look, he's looking down on us, everybody. Like, what is it? You know, we should fight. And that that might have really helped. You're right. That might have. This, this may have been a pretty big mistake on Aegon's part. So that's something we'll talk about when we get there. We've got great set up for future discussions and many f- future discussions to come. We're not quite done yet, though. A couple of wrap up bits here. Shea, you got a question. Well, this is a question for both of us. Yeah. But you ha- are more equipped to answer since you spent more time there. Lolotov wants to know how Atlanta Pride was uh, this past weekend, uh, this, the weekend before last, which is what we did instead of having an episode. Uh, Shea was there all three days and I was just there one day. So, yeah, uh, you start us off, Shea
2: yeah it was uh i mean the weather's nicer than than june that's for sure um, in october but it was a little uh wet and rainy and muddy so there's a lot of mud um at the at the festival one of the days Second day, it was a little bit cold, but besides the weather, which I still honestly would pick that weather over June in Atlanta.
0: Yeah, to be clear, uh, pride is usually in June in most cities, but Atlanta pride is in October.
2: Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the weather didn't cooperate the most, but we still saw some 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 music, some like uh, so a, a DJ that did like ballroom, like voguing, like pose style, you know, like that type of uh, dancers on stage, which was pretty cool. And, um, yeah, I went to some parties. I went to this coyote queer, like a coyote, ugly, like burlesque type show. <laughs> yeah, it was a really fun, fun time. I, honestly, my favorite thing about Pride is seeing the fashion.
0: Yeah, there are just, you will, you will see outfits that you never imagined were, could exist. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I've never, that's a thing I didn't know existed. <laughs> yeah. know, that's my well, reaction.
2: <laughs> yeah, some of them are, are very cool. Some of them are very, uh, just interact. Some of them I honestly yeah. don't like at all, and I, yeah, I, I not like, like Yeah, I don't like everything. I like everything. But sometimes I'm still like, wow, that's so interesting. It's always interesting. Yeah, it's creative, um, even if
0: you don't like it. Sometimes yeah. you know, like I, oh, I'm not sure about that, but it is yeah. creative.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so I, had, I had a good time with that for sure. And John's grabbing a cat for us too, because it's yeah. been a little while. We've been off our our groove and bringing cats out. Yeah.
0: I found myself a nice ring, a Targaryen-looking uh, yeah. ring there's, that I found from a vendor Kora. there at, at Pride. It was cool, black and red, and, and uh, it's, yeah. you know, silvery-colored.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we got a Z for twelve jewelry. bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah a
0: support yeah, I a li- I vendor. Like, I like to wear rings occasionally, yeah. and yeah, from my experience, it was fun. It was just like there's a lot of great food vendors there. There's always a lot of things to see and just walk around. People are always having people are having such a great time. So mm. just like the vibe is really positive. Yeah, the weather—it was a little cold the day I went, but that wasn't such a big deal. You know, you're you're active, you're walking around, and and uh, I love, one thing I really like is how people have they they stake out a spot on Piedmont Park with with like a pavilion almost like the tents that you think about in for a song of ice and fire (laughs) like a a tournament gathered where there's just everybody's got tents set up and it gets a little after a few days the ground gets pretty torn up from so many people walking around and it's worse than usual because it was it was rainy so it was very muddy it's makes you think of the muddy mess (laughs) (laughs) without the fighting instead of and except the opposite attitude instead of people fighting they're all very happy and celebrating love and things like that but it's still just as much foot traffic Mm -hmm. (laughs) so the ground gets just as torn up (laughs) and sean has a cat yay Uh, also
2: one thing i will tell everyone aziz is going to a corn maze on thursday aziz and i are going to a local one here in georgia uh if you remember in our episode on lorath we i discovered the disease has never been in a maze at all and I like mazes, they're cool. And it's a fun experience. And someone reminded me on Discord uh, last month now that it's maize, corn maze season, uh, cause it's obviously seasonal cause it's, uh, they harvest the corn. Uh, someone reminded me. And so I found one that we can go to and uh, we will update y'all with uh, pictures and his take on, on the well, maze. Will you <laughs> right. be, uh,
1: it's a real fail that they're called. Will you be crown king but... of the corn maze?
2: <laughs> a Probably this, not. Were you going to say, these? they should be maize mazes? Yes.
0: It's a fail that they're called corn mazes and not yeah, maize maze mazes, mazes, mazes yeah. maize, you call it corn.
2: I like, I, I just want to say in the chat devoted to Mariah said, I want to hold the kitty, but SKG Anna said, I want to hold
0: Sean. Be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two for one. While he's holding the kitty, like. <laughs>
2: yeah, even better.
0: Yeah, yeah. two for one. <laughs> that got her run away. She's like, I don't like that idea. No. The cat ran away. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, so next week we will pick right back up where we left off with the submission of Old Town, pivoting to those who did not bend the knee, the unbent, the Dornish, the Iron Islanders, and the Three Sisters, and maybe a few other spots. That will be a lot of fun as we work our way through, but also I wanna announce that we're gonna take a break from f- Fire and Blood reread us right at the end of the conquest in order to pivot to do a few other style episodes just to, just to mix things up a little bit before returning, to the Reign of the Dragon. So this is a good spot for that because it's right at the end of the Conquest and we thought that was a good time to take a short break because we usually mix up the topics a little more than this in general, except when we're doing a reread. But the thing is most rereads move around more than Fire and Blood does. World of Ice and Fire jumps topics a lot. A Song of Ice and Fire, of course, does even more because it's chapter by chapter. So we wanted to keep that vibe of mixing things up, not getting too stuck on the Conquest here and not stuck on the Aegon's Reign. So we'll move it around a little bit and keep it fresh and then get back to it. So that's uh, that's the next that's the plan for the rest of the year, basically. And we'll keep you we'll give you be a little more detailed with it as we move forward. So a few people
2: got the trivia question for sure.
0: Okay, yeah. So the trivia question again was where is Hot Pie now? Where was the last place we saw him? The answer is the Inn of the kneeling man. Yes, that's right. That was uh, we did talk about that specifically. And this, remember what happened there? Hot Pie's like, this bread stinks. And they're like, let's see you do a better job. He's like, all right. <laughs> it's like, I'll do it. I will, Give me, a, let me in the kitchen. And then that's what happened. And they were like, yeah, this bread is better. <laughs> hot Pie knows the deal. Yeah, so, which is nice, isn't it? You know, we gotta hope, root for Hot Pie being, he's a, he's a symbolic of people that can find their place in, 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 a, in a war-torn world and make other people's lives a little bit better using their skills yeah go hot pie hope he hope we see him again i hope he's doing well and uh everyone go eat something tasty
2: uh,
0: in honor of hot pie <laughs> we're about to
2: eat something really
0: tasty that's true we've got some uh, homemade lasagna waiting for us out there we are lucky people
2: yeah I'm so very lucky
0: now uh yeah so other episodes that got mentioned during this one before the dragons and under the dragons both of those series are very relevant to hear as you probably know just from the title the Valerian episode, the Doom episode, uh, Age of Heroes content, Highgarden, of course, that's a big one, giving the Surrender of Highgarden is about to come up, and plenty of others that are relevant. Any, pretty much anything to do with House Targaryen is kind of relevant to these, like Mantaris or House Celtigar, or House Valerian, or the Valyria episodes, so many that are out there. And, of course, our recent episode on The Last Storm, which is our patron-slash-members-only episode dealing with the Conquest or that aspect of the Conquest, so you can get that by joining us on Patreon or by becoming a Spotify subscriber or by sending a donation through PayPal. We'll send you all our bonus episodes if you do that. And you can find your way to all of those links and possible ways to support via historyofwesteros.com. Thanks to anyone who does support us that way or by word of mouth or any other way really we do appreciate it it is very important to our success and survival as as an independent show thanks as well to nina for invaluable notes and advice not only does she have notes put in every episode uh, almost every episode but she and i talk about things offline quite a bit which helps me form my thoughts and get them more straightened out and helps me think of things that i might have missed she's invaluable in that regard and in many other ways. Joey, Jesse, and Bran, and Michael Klarfeld, thanks to you guys as well for the intro music, the outro music, the intro video, and the maps behind us. Go to Klaradox, K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X dot to find Michael Klarfeld's site and get maps just like the one behind me for yourself. And also thanks to our Benjineer for sound quality assistance from time to time. That's right, you know what to do. Until next time, everybody, for Sean and Ashaya, Valar, re us.